Hey, deserving listeners, this is chapter six in the Attachment Theory Deep Dive. This is the final chapter, and I thought I would start today's chapter getting down to earth a little bit. You know, mostly what I've been talking about in these deep dives, and by the way, I've already talked for 15 hours about attachment theory, um, so this episode will probably add another couple hours, and so this deep dive is going to be something like 17 hours of material. Um, but anyway, most of the time I've been talking, it's mostly about theory and research and history and all that kind of stuff. But I want to bring it down to earth a little bit. So let's talk about real life here before we go to the patron zone. This email is from patron Alexis. She's a $20 patron of the podcast, a friend, and someone who came to the live show last time. So I got to meet her. She's a lovely person. I communicate with her frequently. She wants to better understand her attachment style. She wants to understand better so she can increase her coping skills and improve her relationships. She also finds comfort in knowing how to accurately conceptualize her attachment style and other people's attachment style. So she has some questions about herself and other people. And I thought that it would be, and she gave permission to read this um, non-anonymously on the podcast. So I just thought I'd read it and um, then we can kind of check in. But I thought that her description was pretty good because it, again, brings us down to earth and really um, puts us into real life. She writes, I'm confused about my attachment style, and any insight you have would be appreciated. Relationships tend to be the primary focus of my life, especially romantic ones. I really want to get married and have a family. In relationships, I constantly worry about my partner leaving me. I tend to obsess about it, and when I fall in love, I fall hard. I've stayed in unhappy relationships past their expiration date for fear of being alone or hurting the other person. I obsess over issues I'm having with the other and wonder frequently if I'm too picky. So usually I accept the flaws of my partners and continue the relationship. I've kept relationships going with people who clearly didn't care for me. In most, in most of my relationships, I have felt needy. My partners tend to be distant. I really desire a lot of physical affection and closeness. I am very concerned when my partner is away. I am hypervigilant of signs they might be leaving me. I go into classic testing tactics when I feel insecure, like making them jealous, jealous or lashing out at them. I am internally critical of both myself and my friends, Losing friends is devastating to me. I mostly put others' needs above my own. I rush into romantic relationships and hate being alone. However, I also so in the so she was saying that she seems preoccupied, but she goes on to say, however, I also have plenty of avoidant behaviors. At work, I don't socialize with my coworkers and prefer to eat lunch alone. I've always preferred living alone. I'm nice and friendly, but I really don't want to get close to roommates and coworkers. I'm avoidant with my family and extremely uncomfortable around their emotions. I'm truly in my own world. I've never been the one to initiate my friendships or romantic relationships. My friends often complain I don't ever initiate contact or plans. I hate conflict. It terrifies me. So I think I'm preoccupied, but it also seems like I'm, I'm avoidant. And I'm much more comfortable with being preoccupied and anxious. But uh, when I think about my avoidant label, I'm less comfortable with that lab label. So any insight you have would be much appreciated. 
So if you've listened to the previous chapters, uh, so that's the end of the email. So if, you listen, if you've listened to the other chapters on attachment theory, you'll hear definite signs of preoccupied attachment or anxious attachment. Um, so, you know, it sounds to me, Alexis, like you definitely have all the classic signs of preoccupied attachment. But you're also saying, hey, you know, I have these other things that I think I, I'm also avoidant. Well, the thing is, is not everyone fits nicely into one of the four categories that we've talked about in previous chapters. You, you're talking about billions of people with a wide variety of different presentations and different experiences. And not only is it hard to categorize people into one of the four categories, but I like to think about it as being on a spectrum. There are, you know, some people are, say, 30% avoidant, 50% secure, and 20% preoccupied or something like that. And research has found that that's actually not a bad way to look at it. So not everyone fits nicely into the four categories. But you definitely sound preoccupied. And also, when I look at your avoidant, uh, what, you, what you claim to be avoidant signs, they're not actually, in my mind, that avoidant. You know, if you were avoidant, you wouldn't have all those signs of preoccupation. Plus, to me, it doesn't sound like you're avoidant, this, the signs you give. The signs you give sound more like introversion or social anxiety. Uh, for example, you say that you don't like to socialize, you keep to yourself, that kind of stuff. Um, preoccupied people can absolutely be introverted, and preoccupied people can can absolutely be socially anxious. So I, I would take a guess and say that you're definitely preoccupied, but also have some potential introversion and or social anxiety. Um, you know, if you were avoidant, you wouldn't actually have those very strong signs like, um, you know, you'd like to... You, you like to bounce from relationship to relationship. You fall in love. You fall in love very hard. You tend to obsess about relationships. The other thing I'll say is that avoidant attachment style, when – so, you know, insecure attachment is um, universal in that when you're insecurely attached, you are thirsty for attachment. And the way that you cope with it determines your quote-unquote attachment style. So the preoccupied people seem to lean in and avoidant people tend to uh, avoid attachments. But the avoidant person still deeply wants relationships. I mean, one way to think about it is that it, underneath the uh, underneath the veil of avoidance for avoidant people lies a preoccupied attached person, meaning that if you kind of get past that avoidant layer, they definitely start to act preoccupied because they deeply want relationships with other people. I mean, I've seen super avoidant people when uh, so when avoidant people, when they're in a relationship and things seem to be going okay, they tend to be very distant and that kind of thing. But when you actually get under their skin, they actually can exhibit preoccupation anyway. So that's just another thing to think about. Um, so patron uh, Alexis, then you, you go on to talk about other things here. You say, um, my current relationship hit a snag. My sense of security has stripped away my, my sense of security was stripped away when my partner abruptly broke up with me and then immediately changed his mind and came back to me. He said, he said as we were uh, talking about the future, he had a moment of panic and decided to break up with me and then realized he didn't really want to break up with me, so we got back together. S since then, I've been acting out classic preoccupied attachment patterns. Before that, though, since he is fairly secure, 
I was more calm and steady. So then she goes on to describe her partner. My partner is an interesting mix of attachment. He loves a lot of togetherness and affection. He loves being taken care of and being mothered, but he respects boundaries extremely well and doesn't ever seem to be hurt when I can't fulfill his needs. He doesn't devote much energy into our relationship. He insists he doesn't experience negative emotions. He even said maybe he's a psychopath, which is laughable if, you know, because if, if you knew him, you would laugh at that. He hates kissing. He walks ahead of me in public. He devotes most of his energy to intellectual pursuits and work. And up until this hiccup, when he broke up with me and then got back together with me, he, was all, he always made me feel safe and secure in the relationship. So I assumed his attachment to be secure, but now I don't know. Yeah, so end of email. Um, now, I have to say, I can't diagnose you and, and I can't diagnose your boyfriend. Um, so, and uh, attachment styles aren't a, a diagnosis in the DSM anyway, but even I can't assess you. I can't provide um, a, a sure uh, assessment, so to speak, of the situation over email, which I think is obvious. But, but you know, uh, having said that, according to what you're saying, um, he definitely has the signs of what I would call mostly avoidant with some secure attachment. Again, you can be on a spectrum. So let's say, you know, 60% avoidant, 40% secure. Um, that's not a scientific statement because we don't really have a way of measuring that sort of thing um, precisely. But anyway, um, so he, as you say, he seems to manage relationships pretty well. He makes you feel uh, safe. He, you know, he's pretty good with boundaries. He's pretty good with uh, making bids for love and attention. So that is classic secure attachment. But he also has some classic avoidance signs. Like, for instance, he panicked at the prospect of committing to you and broke up. When you were talking about the future, uh, he got scared and he broke up. Now, um, breaking up with someone isn't a sign of avoidant, but the fact that he instantly regretted it and went and came back to you and was uh, and felt like regret for breaking up with you so so um, impulsively is a classic avoidant thing. Avoidant people will do that. They get scared and challenged, and their coping style when they're in that state of distress is to run away, to break up, to isolate, to depend on the self, to return to the baseline of I'm okay, I'm independent, I don't need other people. And, you know, screw all this stuff. But the problem is, is the avoidant attachment style, uh, coping style, behavior uh, style is not actually helpful to the individual because it denies them attachment to others. And, and often they will realize that. So, so again, he's not that avoidant because if he was really avoidant, he would have stayed gone and regretted it, but not came back. So, um, so, you know, that's a sign of some, some level of avoidance. Also, also <clears throat> another classic uh, thing about avoidant people is that they will claim that they don't experience emotions, which is what your boyfriend claims. Avoidant people will say, um, you know, I'm, I'm fairly intellectual. I don't experience emotions. And the reality is, is that, of course, they experience emotions because they're humans. They're not robots, but they don't notice them because they cut themselves off from their emotions when they were young as a way of coping with the fact that they're being neglected. So that's a classic sign. And I hear a lot of this from men who are avoidant attachment style. They'll be like, 
I feel like I don't have emotions and I feel like I don't have empathy and I feel like I don't really need other people. And certainly there are some people like that, but usually the case is, is they are avoidant attachment style um, to, to, to a significant degree and they have emotions, but they don't notice them. And all you got to do is dig just a little further into their life to realize that they actually know they have emotions, but it's usually in a very severe way. They will have like really severe emotions during particular episodes when their defenses can't hold it back anymore. The third thing that is a classic uh, avoidance sign is that he devotes a lot of his energy to intellectual pursuits and his work as opposed to relationships, right? A lot of avoidant people will do that. It's, you know, it's, we all need something to pour our energy into. We all need a source of self-esteem. And what avoidant people realized when they were very young, even at the age of like three, four, five, six years old, they realized that in relationships, they couldn't gain any self-esteem because their relational environment was such that they felt neglected and alone or abused or something that made, there was something bad about their caregiving and their parents that made them turn away from them. And what they realized as they grew up is that they could get a lot of gratification by dedicating themselves to school and sports and creativity and that kind of thing. Plus, as a, another benefit to that is the, they tend to get a lot of love and attention by succeeding. When you're really good in school, your parents will occasionally give you love and attention. And so it's a strategy sometimes to gain love and attention to dedicate yourself to those things because you actually don't trust that if you go straight for the attachment, you're going to get it. And the fourth uh, classic sign of avoiding attachment that he exhibits, it's not a classic sign, but he walks ahead of you in public. And I find this to be a very interesting observation by you, patron Alexis, that he walks ahead of you in public. And it is kind of weird, right? It's like you're walking in the mall and they walk ahead of you. It's like, why are you doing that? It's so annoying. You know, I've been with people that have done that before and I find it to be incredibly annoying. Or they walk just behind you, you know. There's a certain skill that apparently most of us develop where we learn how to walk almost subconsciously gauge our speed based on the person we're walking with, right? And so he walks ahead of you. Now, it's hard to say exactly why this is. It's possible that he's just a really fast walker or maybe Alexis, you're just a really slow walker. I don't know. <laughs> but it's also possible that because he had to turn off his emotions when he was a young person, it makes it harder for him to notice his own empathy and to notice his own emotions and to pay attention to other people. So he has a certain attention to his emotions and other people, but he, he learned a long time ago to, get, to not pay attention to that. And so as he's walking, he's, he's just sort of self-focused and he's walking at his own pace and he's not, he's not modifying his pace for you not as a way of being a dick, but because he's just not, he doesn't notice. And before long, he's a couple feet ahead of you or something. And uh, so now if I had the luxury of actually talking to him, maybe he'll say something like, well, Alexis walks really slow and it drives me crazy. So I like to walk fast because I, I, I want her to catch up to me. Or I'm a very impatient person and I hate, you know, I just got to get to my destination. Or... um you know, he might say like, what are you talking about? I never walk ahead of her. That's crazy. Alexis is a crazy person. <laughs> like, it's just hard to know like what I would find if I actually worked with you, with you two people. But, but anyway, so yeah, he, he has, like you said, some signs of secure and some signs of avoidant. So he sounds like he's some mixture of that. 
And, uh, you know, and a lot of times for preoccupied people such as yourself, they will find that they're attracted to avoidant people because there's this inherent um, distance that's upheld in the pursuer distancer. You know, the, the, the avoidant person is often looking for a preoccupied person because the avoidant person needs love and attention, but the avoidant person doesn't ask for love and attention. Deep down, they want it, but they, but they have a hard time asking for it. So, it's, so sometimes they'll fit well with a preoccupied person because the preoccupied person doesn't wait for the person to ask for it. The preoccupied person just invades and sort of forces love on the avoidant person, which of course the avoidant person is desperate for. And the preoccupied person is looking – so, and the preoccupied person, what they're looking for is someone who is stable someone who is quote-unquote strong, someone who is not reactive. And avoidant people tend to not be very reactive. And so because if a preoccupied person is with someone who is reactive, like they get angry or they get jealous a lot or they get, um, I don't know, sad a lot or hurt, you know, their feelings get hurt very easily, then the preoccupied person becomes extremely anxious because the preoccupied person when they're with someone who has a lot of emotions, they tend to obsess on that and worry about the other person because bad emotions means that their partner might leave them. And so, um, and, and then the preoccupied person might even punish their partner for having emotions or they might even um, sort of try to get the other person to not have any emotions, try to control their emotionality. Whereas an avoidant person they, they, they look extremely stable and safe to a preoccupied person. The problem is the avoidant person is not necessarily safe, as what Alexis realized here, is that he seemed very stable and very kind and very level-headed. But when you started talking about the future, he suddenly broke up with you, and then he suddenly came back. So... Uh, it's possible, and so it's also possible. And I hate to say this, Alexis, but it's also possible that your partner, because he's avoidant, he has things rattling around in his head that he's not—he's not telling you. There, there are people who are um, either really afraid to reveal what's in their mind, um, whether it be something small like "I don't like the way you walk so slow," <laughs> or something big like "I'm not sure about our future," and um, so. So there's all that kind of stuff. Again, I can't. I have no idea what your relationship is like. Um, I know you kind of well. I, f I feel like you're um, a lovely individual, and I feel like I can trust your statements about yourself. But anyway, so I thought it'd be. I thought it would be good to read your email here uh, at the beginning of this chapter because I wanted to kind of this, kind of to bring this back to earth. If some, if you are listening to this and you haven't heard the other chapters, and some of this isn't making a lot of sense, you have to listen to the other chapters. You have to listen to the previous. 14 hours of attachment style deep dive or attachment theory deep dive because I'm guessing this whole discussion here will make a lot more sense. But I hope some of it actually resonated with you. Okay, so let's get into this chapter here. In this chapter, we're going to, it's sort of the, this is the grab bag chapter of all the things that I haven't talked about yet. Um, I'm going to talk about parenting, I'm going to talk about parenting styles and attachment. I'm going to talk about how attachment style of the parent influences the way the parent parents. I'm going to talk about social competence, adoption, and that how that affects attachment. I'm, I'm going to talk about how parents will 
use technology like TV and their cell phones and how that affects attachment. I'm going to talk about so-called attachment parenting, which for some of you, you might have heard in the news, attachment parenting. I'm going to talk about the birthing process. The birthing process has something to do with attachment. I'm going to talk about sibling jealousy, sibling rivalry. I'm going to talk about the brain and the biology of the brain and attachment. I'm going to talk about attachment style and memory. That's very fascinating when you look in how memory is different. The, The process of memory in the brain is different for secure, avoidant, and preoccupied people. I'm going to talk about opioids in memory. Uh, meaning our endogenous opioids. Uh, We're going to talk about oxytocin in memory, cortisol, uh, inflammation, mirror neurons. I'm going to talk about perfectionism and and how that applies to attachment style and attachment experiences, adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. We're going to talk about the big five personality traits and how it relates to attachment style. I'm going to go into personality disorders a little bit. I'm going to do a fair amount of talking on a reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder. I'm going to talk about the proposed disorder for the DSM-5 called developmental trauma disorder, which I really like, the designation. Uh, Crime, grief, alexithymia, addiction, uh, depression, social anxiety. We're going to talk about social anxiety for a while. A little bit on eating disorders, death anxiety, anger problems, and psychopathy. You know, what... How does attachment and relate to the development of a lack of empathy, uh, a, you know, the development of a psychopath, the development of any social personality? I'm going to talk about how do you measure attachment, the various different measures that have been scientifically developed over the last 30 years um, and how, how they work. And we're going to talk about dandelion child, children and orchid children. Uh, I'm going to talk about public policy and public health in relation to uh, attachment disorder, um, Donald Trump, and how that's related to our attachment. I talk about social media and Facebook and pets. We're, we're going to talk a while about pets because that's very important for our attachment. Um, I talk about emotional regulation and uh, let's see what else is on my <laughs> uh, health. Uh, and so on. We're going to talk. So this is, like I said, this is a grab bag episode. So if you're not a patron of the podcast, do so now. You have to become a patron to listen to this episode and the other 14 hours of a deep dive on attachment disorder by going to patreon.com. That's patreon.com. Become a patron of the podcast. You'll get instructions on how to access this episode and the hundreds of other patron exclusive episodes. When you become a patron of the podcast, you just you know get the warm feeling that you know you're supporting something that you like. The only reason why I can do these deep dives is because you you guys are patrons. Uh, if if I wasn't getting paid to do this gig, I there is no possible way I could dedicate so much time. I've to this deep. I mean, to talk for seventeen hours about something just takes that's seventeen hours right there. But I prep for the episodes for months. I've been prepping for this specific you know set of episodes for four or five months, which means that every time I had free time, like I would have, okay, Saturday and Sunday, I have nothing to do. All I'm going to do 16 hours a day is work on this deep dive. And that's what I've been doing. And the only way I could do that is because you guys are patrons, which is super cool of you. So if you're not yet a patron, go to patreon.com, become a patron. Do so now. All right, welcome to the patron zone. 
So the first thing I want to talk about here is that there are many different styles of parenting, and some of the common categorizations are authoritative, authoritarian, permissive, and disengaged. So just a brief synopsis on that is authoritative is the healthy version of parenting. This is where there's lots of love and there's also a lot of um, healthy discipline and guidance. And the children will obey out of a healthy loyalty and not out of fear. And the parents are often of secure attachment. So that's authoritative where you have healthy control and a lot of affection for the children. So discipline plus affection, control plus affection. Authoritarian is high control, low affection. And these parents are, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of discipline, a lot of uh, structure, which is great, but there's no affection to kind of mediate the downsides to that discipline. And so a lot of the kids will feel neglected and hurt and will are more likely to develop insecure attachment. And these parents are often exhibiting insecure attachment themselves. Children in these situations grow up with a lot of shoulds. They end up um, feeling as though rules are to be followed for fear of punishment, not because they want to bond with the parents, that kind of thing. And they equate, they can, they can sometimes grow up equating love and affection with being a good boy or a good girl by, you know, if I follow the rules, then I'll get love and attention, which of course doesn't really work out. We have permissive parenting, which is the opposite of authoritarian, which you have low control, but high affection. So it's good because there's lots of affection, but bad because there's no healthy control. So parents, permissive parents are often heard saying things like, you know, please stop that. So they'll, they'll sort of plead with their kids or try to be friends with their kids as a way of trying to control their behavior without actually having a firm structure around that. This promotes insecure attachment in the children and also is a sign of insecure attachment in the parents. Then we have disengaged parenting, which is called neglectful sometimes. This is low control and low affection. This essentially is massive neglect and obviously promotes insecure attachment and the parents are often insecure in the situation. Essentially, the message given to kids is to just leave me alone. The parents are just like, just leave me alone. Don't bother me. I'm not going to control you, and I'm not going to give you any love. So when we look at those common attachment styles, it's tempting to try to draw direct lines of causation between each of these to the different attachment styles, right? You have authoritative, which is the healthy parenting style. Well, obviously, those people are going to, the children are going to be secure in that situation. And although that one actually is somewhat uh, correlated, um, the authoritarian, permissive, disengaged parenting styles aren't, there's some evidence that they're slightly associated with avoidant, preoccupied, and disorganized, but um, but they're just really slight associations and the, the research seems to be mixed. So it's important to remember that uh, the paths to different attachment style coping are varied and meandering for a lot of people. That as a two-year-old, you might be avoidant. As a seven-year-old, you might be preoccupied. As a 10-year-old, you might be secure. And there's just a lot of factors that play into it. Socialization, gender, modeling, culture, 
random chance, parenting style. Parenting might change over time. There might be a divorce. Maybe there's a step-parent that comes in. So there's just a lot of different things that affect one's experience growing up. But the general thing can be said, which is that the better the parenting, the more secure the child is going to be. Also, parents, their attachment style affects the way that they parent. Obviously, early experiences with attachments, when we grow up, that influences our parenting attitudes and our parenting behaviors. And those who experience bad things growing up will tend to become bad parents. You know, they struggle with parenting. Um, For example, one study looked at all the different families that were referred to Child Protective Services. So these are families that are, you know, to some extent empirically experiencing more difficulties as parents because they're being referred to CPS. And they found that 30% were secure, which compared to 70% of the regular population, 34% were avoidant, and 31% were preoccupied. Um, what, again, this is, com- this is compared to the average of about 60 to 70% secure, 23% avoidant, and 19% preoccupied. So there's a much higher rate of insecure attachment among those parents who are referred to CPS. But the other thing to look at here is that 30% of the parents referred to CPS are found to have secure attachment. So this tells you that even secure attachment does not guarantee that you don't have problems in life, right? Because there's a lot of different roads to problems. And securely attached people can have bad parenting practices modeled to them. They can get in a bad mood and all this kind of thing. They can also be closer to insecure attachment than secure attachment. And so it's just important to remember that these things are not black and white. Securely attached parents have been found by research to perceive their children's attachment signals more accurately, react more quickly, and respond in more appropriate ways. In other words, securely attached parents are found to be more attuned to their children. Avoidant parents respond with more insensitivity to the child's cues and signals, meaning that avoidant parents are not paying as much attention to their children as much. Preoccupied parents tend to respond with less supportive, with anger, and with more intrusive ways. So this makes total sense to me. And disorganized parents tend to be more frightening to their children. Um, So now, again, we can't be black and white about this, but when we're looking at trends, securely attached parents tend to be more attuned. Avoidant parents tend to be uh, less, they, they pay less attention, but they're also not likely to be super abusive. Preoccupied parents are paying attention to their kids, but they're generally less supportive, they're generally more angry, and they, gen- they tend to be more intrusive. Intrusive are enmeshment types of behaviors like um, demanding how a child is supposed to feel invading a child's space and bodily space, that kind of thing. Um, when a teenager or, you know, reading your child's diary, that's kind of a classic preoccupied thing to do. And then disorganized parents are, are more likely to be abusive and frightening, scary to the children. Now, of course, this makes total sense because 
these four different groups, this is how they were likely parented when they were growing up. For disorganized people, they're much more likely to have experienced frightening, abusive behavior as children. And so that was modeled to them, plus it sort of caused their attachment style problems, which in turn influences their parenting, right? Also, research has found that when parenting is more attuned and better for kids, that the children actually grow up with higher levels of social competence. And this can be as early as kindergarten. So children who are raised well and attuned to, they're just better able at they're just better able to navigate relationships. They're more likely to be liked at school. They're more likely to have friends. They're more likely to be liked by their teachers. They're less likely to get in trouble for various different things. And so just imagine that effect, right? That you are mistreated by your parents and you enter school with a social skill deficit. You don't really know how to relate to other people. You can't regulate your emotions. You can't really predict other people's behaviors very well. You have low self-esteem. And then the compounding mistreatment, so to speak, that a child goes through because they don't have friends, they're isolated, they're bullied, or they become a bully. And by the time they're 10, they've already experienced and perpetrated many different problems in their life, all because they weren't raised in an attuned manner when they were young. All right, let's look at using technology and parenting, meaning devices, phones, this kind of stuff. Preoccupied people have been found to use social media more as an outlet for their needs for positive feedback and their need for a sense of connectedness with other people. So this can be a good thing. You know, if you're preoccupied and you're worried and you need attachment security, reaching out over social media might actually help you, might actually help you to get your attachment needs met. Having said that, if it becomes a extreme need and you sacrifice other parts of your life like parenting, then that's going to create problems in those other areas of your life. Along those lines, research has found that time spent on the internet can decrease time spent on parenting, which can interfere with the attachment relationship, which is what Aiken found in 2016. So uh, if you're a parent out there, you might want to pay attention to how much screen time you use, which makes total sense, right? If you're on your phone five hours a day, then you're, you have less time and energy to pay attention to your kids. Along these lines, a study by Kokorian et al. in 2009 found that background TV, uh, you know, when your TV is just on all the time in the background, that this negatively affects the quality and the quantity of the interactions between parents and children. So if you're one of those households that just like keeps the TV on all the time, regardless of watching it, think a little bit more about that as to whether or not that's distracting you from your, from your kids. As I've talked about before, I used to do in-home therapy, and I would find that um, there were houses – you get to know a lot of different people's houses. I mean if – so in, in an average week, I would enter 15 to 20 different people's homes all around the Seattle area from various different backgrounds, different, various different cultures. And one of the things that I found was that there were families that left the TV on all the time, and there were families that didn't. And some families that left the TV on all the, all the time, they would leave it on even during our family therapy session. We'd be sitting in the living room having a family therapy session, and they would leave the TV on. And I am not one of those people. Like, I can't have a TV on. 
I need things to be very quiet and I need things to be non-distracting. And when a TV is on, all I can, I can't think of anything else. The the flashing lights, everything, it just totally distracts me. I'll never forget one time I I went into a house and it wasn't a family session. It was just a session with the mom and we're sitting in the living room and the, 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 and it was a gigantic TV, especially for its time. And it was on and I had uh, experienced this enough times where I just had a routine where I just asked them if they could please turn off the TV because it was very distracting to me. At first I was like, why do you have the TV on? That's so weird. But then over time I just developed this polite way of saying, well, could you turn off the TV? Cause it's really distracting to me and I, I can't concentrate with the TV being on. And so I said that, and the woman said, no, I'm not turning off the TV. It was this very aggressive response to me. And I was like, oh, okay. Uh, I guess I'll just have to deal with this TV. So anyway, um, I think it's also kind of a chicken and the egg thing too, because if I have found that when you are traumatized and when you're anxious, you're much more likely to need a distraction. And sometimes the TV always being on is one of those things. It's sort of a it can also like keep you company too. It, it's like, well, um, I just get this sense like I'm not alone when my TV is on. And so if you're, if you've been traumatized and you're struggling with PTSD or whatever, and the TV is on more often, then obviously, uh, your parenting is going to suffer primarily because of your emotional struggles and the TV being on is just a symptom of that. But also if you come from a culture where it's just normal to have the TV on all the time, then that could be the cause of you having troubles with your parenting. Um, and they've actually found research, Vandewater et al. 2006, that when children view more TV, then this is associated with less frequent interactions with the parents, which again makes total sense. Um, also, parents on their phones have been found to ignore the needs of their children. This is a study by Redesky et al. 2014. So there's this idea out there that parents can multitask, right? That you know, parents will say, um, I can be on my phone and pay attention to my kids. But they actually studied this and found that when, found that when parents are on their phones, it's, it's harder for them to pay attention, and they're more likely just to ignore their children, which again makes total sense, but bears repeating given the research has found this. Also, when a family watches a lot of TV, the children have been found by Fearon and colleagues in 2010 that children spend larger amounts of time alone and not interacting with their caregivers. So some families might have this culture of just like, well, when we watch TV, we watch it together. And it's this togetherness thing. And it certainly can be that way, absolutely. But when you look at the research, average out everybody, the more TV a family watches they have found that that's associated with less interaction between children and parents. So it's just another thing to think about. Also, a lot of people, uh, Houghton et al. 2015, have found that uh, portable devices are increasingly becoming more of a virtual pacifier for children. So, you know, when you're out and about, you're at the mall, you're at the grocery store, you want your kid to be entertained. That's, That's a major consideration for parents. It's like, okay, we're walking out the door with my with my kid. I need them to be entertained and distracted so that they're not bored or fussy or upset or getting in my way or 
having a tantrum. I need them to be happy. And if it's one thing that I know that they like, it's watching cartoons on the iPad or playing a game on my phone. And um, it's been found that um, it impacts the child's ability to soothe themselves. And uh, because it's like the children depend on these screens to actually like calm them down. And that is not a good thing, right? So <clears throat> it also it has a kind of an imprinting effect on children in that they end up associating screens with like an, an attachment figure in some ways. I'm not going to get all alarmist about it. It's not like if you give your kid a screen to watch cartoons and watch Dora the Explorer, it's the end of the world because it isn't by any means. But you just have to make sure it's not excessive. And But the, really, the, I guess the key is, is you got to make sure that as a parent, you're spending a lot of good quality time with your kid as much as you can. And if sometimes you're using a screen to pacify them, then fine. But I think without that foundation of that secure attachment with their caregiver, they'll end up turning to the screens as a, as a way of coping with the distance. And so it's just something to think about. Um. Another finding by uh, Laura Cella and colleague, colleagues in 2010 found that parents who use a lot of devices tend to have children who also use a lot of devices, which makes sense because of modeling and learning and all that kind of stuff. Other research has found that a lot of uh, phone use can result in insecure attachment. Um, again, it's hard to say what's coming first. Is it insecure attachment causes or bad parenting or insecure attachment in the parent is uh, causes both bad parenting and also technology use, or does the technology use actually contribute to insecure attachment? I would say it's probably both. And I really think that as we move forward in our society, and as I've talked about in other chapters, we keep moving more and more away from uh, closeness in proximity and closeness and in intimacy and more towards independence and um, isolation. And these devices are accelerating that. I'm not, again, I'm not an alarmist. I look at my phone all the time too, but I just think we all just need to think real careful about this. Like I'm getting more and more annoyed with students who always have their cell phone out. This is something I didn't see before. I'm also hearing more and more reports from people saying that their therapist will actually answer their phone when they're in session or text someone or look at their phone when their phone lights up during, in the middle of a fucking session, they'll be talking to a client and uh, a therapist will text someone. <laughs> and now, for some therapists, their kid could be in danger and they need to be looking at their phone, uh, or their mom is uh, really sick in the hospital and they, they need to respond, which is normal and fine. And sometimes you're like, well, I, I can still see my clients as long as I, I just have to check my phone every once in a while. But the thing is, is all you have to do is you just have to tell your clients. You'd be like, so I'm really sorry, but um, I have a family emergency that I need to monitor and I just need to make sure I keep my phone out. And if you're not comfortable going into the de details, just don't go into details. If the client's like, well, what do you mean? Like, what's wrong with your family? You'd be like, I, I don't want to get into that, but I, I just need to, I just wanted to tell you because I just need to have my phone out. Or if you really wanted to be vague, you just tell your clients that you have a work emergency or something that you have to monitor the phone for or something. Anyway, um, also research by uh, Mater et al. in 2017 found that when 
we overuse digital technology, our phones and this kind of thing, that this can overall lead to increases in stress in the stress hormone cortisol. So when we use technology too much, it actually has a tendency to cause changes in our body, which makes us feel more stressed out or is, an, or is evidence of us being more stressed out, which is, you know, pretty frightening. And a lot of times I find that people aren't necessarily aware of their cortisol uh, cycles, meaning that if you ask them, how do you feel? They're like, oh, I feel fine. But their body, meanwhile, is, is having a reaction. Um, so the American Academy of Pediatrics 2016 advised the following thing regarding uh, children and screens. They recommend that from zero to 18 months that these children do not use screens, which I think is good advice. But a lot of parents might be giving their one-year-old their screens. Now, to some extent, one-year-olds just sort of like looking at your phone for 10 minutes is one thing. But anyway, the point is, is American Academy of Pediatrics say zero to 18 months, no screen use. Uh, 18 months to 24 months, they, again, recommend no screen use. Or if they're going to use a screen, you got to make sure it's high-quality programming and you got to watch it with them to make sure that they understand what they're watching. And then two to five years, their recommendation is a maximum of one hour per day and only of high-quality programs. So I think this is where it really kicks in. Because there are, I would say, anecdotally, there's a fair amount of two- to five-year-old kids who are definitely watching more than one hour per day on a screen. And many of them are are just browsing the internet without any kind of controls. There was a news report recently about this, this suicide image or something on YouTube, this like really freaky looking face. And there was this message of just like, kill yourself, kill yourself. And it was creating all this um, hubbub in, in the news. And all I could think of was, so people are letting their three-year-olds just browse YouTube <laughs> And they're like, well, you know, it's children's YouTube. And I'm like, well, you're going to trust that YouTube and the users of YouTube aren't going to mess up with that? Because this video, from what I understood, was actually being uh, coded as a child video, even though it was like a very, very disturbing video. And I get that you need your kids to be entertained, and I get that... Um, it's hard to prevent them from looking at screens, but I, it really does disturb me that there are parents just handing their devices over to the kids and just trusting that the kid won't be exposed to something damaging when a click away are some of the most horrific, traumatizing images for anyone of any age. So... Now, some people will use devices that actually aren't connected to the internet at all, and they just have like certain games or they've downloaded, uh, you know, Frozen or something. And so you're going to be a lot safer in that realm. And so um, anyway, so if you're parents out there, I, I would just try to try to monitor that. And I get that there's stress in parenting and there's limited amount of time and you got to do what you got to do. So I'm not going to shame parents 
for what they're going to do. But anyway, the, the recommendation is really um, pretty low amount of screen use, probably because we want to make sure that the kids are paying attention to the world and also pay attention to you and that you're the two of you are bonding and having experiences together. Also, that their brain isn't becoming warped by uh, by screens, that screens aren't becoming the way they interact with the world. Um, again, I'm not an alarmist. I think that in the future, like the, the generation of, the, the, of infants today with their uh, – with the I mean imagine, imagine what kids today are going to say when they're 30 years old. They're going to look back and go like, oh, I remember when I was two years old, I played this one video game on my iPad. Like just imagine, <laughs> just so weird. I'm sure there maybe some of you listening out there are young enough to remember such things. That's such a weird thought for me, I have to tell you, um, and and how that will affect our feelings about screens and our feelings about these sorts of things. I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing. I don't think it's a horrible thing, but I think we definitely need to make sure we pay attention to it. Um, so there's this other thing called uh, so just moving on, there's this other thing called attachment parenting. And I've actually done a whole episode on attachment parenting. So you can go to the website, because it's a pretty old episode, but you can go to the uh, website and actually find that. I think I have a page called Family, and under that page I think would be a, the attachment parenting of us, take a guess. So attachment parenting was made famous by the pediatrician William Sears. It was called The Baby Book, and it was published in 1991. And it was a parenting style based on Bowlby's research, uh, William Sears. And it focused on developing secure, stable detachments between children using techniques, um, the seven baby bees, and this is all to be used between zero and two years old. So the seven baby bees, baby bees, you know, seven bees. You have birth bonding, you have breastfeeding, you have baby wearing, Baby wearing meaning you carry the baby on your body instead of in a stroller. Bedding close to baby meaning you sleep close to your – meaning when the child goes down to sleep, you make sure that they're close to you. Belief in baby's cries meaning that when the child cries between zero to, one, zero to two, you don't think of that as a manipulation. You actually think of that as an honest cry for help, an honest um, expression of discomfort of some kind. Beware of baby trainers in relation to infant schedules. Uh, balance between baby needs and the rest of the family. So in other words, uh, you, you want to make sure you don't completely sacrifice everything else in the family just to, pay, just to take care of this baby. You need to make sure that your marriage is strong, your relationship with your friends is strong, your relationship with the other kids is strong. So there's, there's this balance between that. Now, attached attach to parenting, there's some controversy around it because um, I don't know if you remember that. So the reason why I did an episode on this is because I, I was asked to come on the radio as a guest expert because I don't know if you remember that Time magazine cover where there's a young woman and um, she's breastfeeding what looks to be like her five- or six-year-old boy. And they're just standing there, like staring at the camera. It's a it's a poise. It's like a picture that they took in the studio, and um, it caused a lot of controversy. And so, uh, the ra a radio station nearby wanted to talk about it, so they interviewed me and other people. And anyway, so attachment parenting 
has some controversies around it, but it is, I, I'm, I love it. I, I think some of the dogma around it can be a little silly, but the principles I think are great. Um, for example, let's just take the um, bedding close to baby, right? So in the past, we uh, are, would put kids into a crib in a room far away, and when they cried, you might not even be able to hear them. That Not every family was like this, but that was the belief. Remember, if back to the other chapters that I've been talking about, the history of attachment theory, there was a belief that if you responded to your children crying, you were actually spoiling them, even at the age of like six months old. And what William Sears came out with, and many other people at the time, was looking at John Bowlby's research, they found that, no, you can't, that's not spoiling your kid. When they're six months old and they're crying, you need to go to them because if you don't, they're going to develop insecure attachment. So this idea of uh, making sure that you, when the child goes down to sleep that they're near you means that when they start to cry, you'll notice, and also means that if they wake up and they see you, they're less likely to cry. And to put them in a crib in a faraway room, although you think that's what you're supposed to do, is actually not what you're supposed to do. And actually, when parents are left to their own devices, they don't want to do that. Most parents, when they put their kids down to sleep, they want the kid to be close to them, particularly when they're really young, like six months. So the only reason why we put kids in cribs and faraway rooms is because that was what people were, thought they were supposed to do. That's what they were told that was good parenting. But it's really against every natural thing that's supposed to happen, including the parents' instincts. So uh, that's sort of thing. And, and some people will take it to the level of uh, for the first – number of months, the child will sleep in the bed with the couple. Now, a lot of people say, well, what about sex between the parents? And this is where that seventh B comes in, which is you have to balance between the baby's needs and the needs of the rest of the family. And uh, for many married couples, sex is very important. And so you don't want to have the kids sleeping in the bed at the expense of the sexual life between the marriage. So there always has to be some sort of balance. Um, so anyway, uh, maybe I should do a whole episode on attachment parenting, but, um, for time's sake, let's move on. So I stumbled across a number of different studies that looked at the birthing process and attachment style, which I thought was interesting. And I thought I would just briefly talk about it here. They found that preoccupied mothers have higher levels of perceived pain during birth. Isn't that interesting? So when you're a preoccupied mother, you're more likely either to express your pain or more likely to feel more pain during birth. Isn't that interesting? And you just kind of wonder why. It's like, why would that be? I mean, you could speculate, but it's interesting. Avoidant mothers feel less respected by the birthing staff, according to research. Quinn et al., 2015. Insecurely attached mothers, so both preoccupied and avoidant, they have higher levels of traumatic stress symptoms from the birth, particularly if the women delivered by C-section, which was found by Ayers and colleagues in 2014. They're more likely to withdraw in an angry way, and they're more likely to compulsively seek care from other people. So let's just highlight this for a second. So for both preoccupied and avoidant mothers, as opposed to secure mothers, they are much more likely to have traumatic stress symptoms traumatic stress symptoms from the birthing process. Again, particularly if it was a C-section. 
They're also more likely to withdraw and be angry, and they're also more likely to compulsive seek care from other people. Compulsively seek care, on average. Uh, another thing found by Reese et al. 2018 is that attachment figures serve as a secure base for mothers during childbirth, which is very important. So if you are a family heading into childbirth, think about the attachment uh, vibe for the mother as they go through that. If you are a support person to the birthing mother, make sure that you attend to the mother's attachment needs. If, if, you're a, if you're a mother about to give birth, make sure you are cognizant of your attachment needs and you plan ahead for that. Now, a lot of contemporary birthing procedures involve spouses and other people potentially being in the room or if, or if you're giving birth at home, oftentimes you have a assistant who you know pretty well or a physician that you know pretty well, and, and your spouse might be there too. Um, but I think it's interesting that we want to make sure that we really pay attention to that because a, a lot of the birthing uh, discussion and planning has to do with safety, which of course is important, and um, – managing of pain and all this kind of stuff, which is also important. But I rarely find that people talk about like, well, when I'm at the depths of my pain and I'm having a hard time with energy and I'm demoralized, who do I want to be with me to to make me feel like I'm not alone? Who do I want to turn to to tell what I'm going through and to have them be attuned to my experience? I don't find a lot of people talking about that. Uh, so I think that's important. Of course, there are people who talk about that, but anyway. Um, and uh, Sigurd Dardortier et al., 2017. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. That's an interesting name. Sigurd Dardotir. Sigurd Dardotir. Sigurd Dardotir um, et al., 2017, found that mother's experience of the mother's the, the experience of mothers during birth of their social support influenced their birth experiences, and this influence can last for years after the birth. So get that. So when birthing mothers feel supported and feel securely attached through their birthing process, that it significantly affects their narrative of the situation, which makes sense, but that effect can last for years after the birth. So it's very important that we pay attention to that. Okay, let's talk about sibling jealousy. Bowlby in 1969 actually wrote about that, wrote about sibling jealousy. He wrote, quote, In most young children, the mere sight of mother holding another baby in her arms is enough to elicit strong attachment behavior, unquote. So children have been found by research to exhibit jealousy very early in life, as early as nine months so remember in the theory chapter when I talked about the different early phases of attachment, we talked about how the child will begin to um, attach to one one individual caregiver around six months. And by nine months, they have found that the child is not only primarily attaching to uh, one person, maybe two people, but they have the ability to perceive when their 
primary caregiver is actually paying attention to other people and will exhibit attachment uh, behaviors, right? Either crying or moving toward the parent or being upset or something. And so uh, now this can actually apply to the primary parent paying attention just to their spouse, to the other parent. So uh, for example, the uh, let's say the child is primarily attached to the father of a heterosexual couple, and the um, baby sees the father paying attention or touching or something, the mother of the child. Well, it's possible for that child, that infant, that nine-month-old infant, to actually be jealous that the father's paying attention to the child's mother and will do things to stop it. There's actually a fair amount of funny YouTube videos about this. You can see these babies... Like, um, no, you can't, you can't hold mom's hand. You have to hold my, my hand, that kind of thing. Um, also, uh, a number of different studies uh, in the past seven, eight years, Hart et al., um, um, Mize et al., a number of different studies, have found that when children are jealous in the lab, when you, when you make children jealous in the lab— they have a hard they have a they have a harder time regulating their emotions which of course makes sense so what we call this is in children is a jealousy protest it is approach behavior with facial expressions of sadness so that's the that's the main attachment behavior that children will exhibit is they will approach their parent while looking sad as a way of protesting the attention that the caregiver is giving someone else. And it's believed that this jealousy protest attachment behavior evolved to shape parental behavior, perhaps in response to the parent's intense focus on a newborn sibling, which stands to reason. So, for example, uh, again, this is mostly speculation, but it stands to reason. A mother has a child, and that child has the mother's full attention. And both mother and child evolved to pay attention to that attachment. And the mother's attuned, and the mother knows what's happening and responds quickly to the child's needs. Then the mother has another child. Say um, the, older, the older kid is uh, you know, one and a half years old, maybe two years old. A another kid enters the family. Well, because the mother evolved to really be intensely interested in her newborn child, that love and attention given to that newborn child could potentially eclipse the attunement to the older child. Well, in response to that threat to attachment, children evolved a jealousy attachment reactivity to kick in to alert the parent to pay attention to them as well. So the older child will express jealousy, they'll, they'll try to cuddle. And any parent who's had more than one kid has seen this before, particularly when you have them in close succession. If, if you do them in like seven years apart, it's less likely to this. It can definitely happen then too. But you'll see the older kids will, um, you know, you're, you're breastfeeding the younger child. And the older child will just try to like squeeze in between you and your, your, new, your new infant. And the intention is quite obvious, right? And the emotions are quite reasonable. This, the older child 
has had your full attention and your full love for their entire life, which comprises of one and a half years. And now, all of a sudden, most of your love and attention is going to someone else. And to the older child, that is very distressing. And uh, so uh, this... Usually, if you're you could most parents can attune to both parents again, it helps when there's a village, right? The other parent, grandparents, aunts and uncles, they can all help to make that older sibling feel special and attuned to and cared about and distracted. So there's a lot of things that can happen. Okay, so that was a bunch of random details about parenting that I didn't get to in the other chapters. Let's go on to another topic here. Let's go into biology and the brain. So biology and brain science, neuroscience, uh, is absolutely related to attachment. There's a, there's a fair amount of research looking at it. But I know enough about the brain and a, I know enough about biology to know that I will sound like a moron if I try to talk about it at any length. So I'm just going to try to keep it quite brief and general because when you actually talk to neuroscientists researching uh, brain people, you will find that there is, and I've read some of the articles, there's a lot of really technical language out there. So um, some areas of the brain are associated with the attachment process, particularly part of the right cortex, which has to do with memories, meaning that when you are interacting with your mother, your right cortex gets gets involved because your right cortex has a lot of encoded memories associated with your mother, right? And it's not just factual memories, it's emotional memories, all that kind of stuff. Also, the anterior cingulate cingulate cortex, which connects emotions with thoughts and cognitions. So um, it seems to become engaged uh, when we're approaching something that we associate with pain. And so we're, uh, we're, we're thinking about memories, we're trying to avoid pain, also, the neuropeptide oxytocin, All of, many of us have heard of oxytocin. Uh, it's sometimes called the social hormone or the love hormone. It's present in mammals, and it's involved in bonding with other people, particularly with spouses and our children and our parents. And so the oxytocin, parts of the right cortex, and the anterior sing- cingulate cortex are some of the areas that I found that the research points to as uh, involved in the attachment process. With, with other people. There's a lot of other parts of the brain that they have found associated with the attachment process as well. And as I always say, our brain science is pretty rudimentary at this point, so it's hard to even know uh, what we're looking at at this point. So let's look at attachment style and memory. I found this research when I came across this in my deep dive to be extremely helpful to me. It explained uh, so much about my observation of myself and of others and of my clients. So let's look at attachment style and memory. Researchers have looked into how attachment style affects the way memory is both encoded and received. So it's important to know that memory, it's, it's a two-step process overall. One is, is that there's an encoding process, which is the memory being saved, so to speak, to the hard drive. It's not a hard drive. It's a very squishy mess of goo uh, that's imprecise. It's not a. It's the the analogy to computers and our brain is actually pretty fraught, but you know. Anyway, so uh, memory is encoded, and then 
it is stored, so to speak, and then later on we retrieve it at some point. Now, it's, under, it's important to understand that none of that process is related necessarily to reality, that memory is, uh, they found it time and time again, uh, a very malleable process. It's a, an emotional process. It's, it's affected by our emotions, affected by the way we see things. Um, I mean, just as an analogous uh, concept, remember the, the, the white dress, blue dress thing, or was it yellow dress, blue dress? Remember that whole dress controversy from a couple years ago? Well, that shows you that people not only um, remember things differently, but they, they actually see things differently. You, two people are looking at the same picture and they're like, no, that dress is blue. No, no, that dress is white or whatever the other one, because I'm pretty sure I saw the white dress. Or the blue. Anyway, the point is, is that uh, brains are weird and they're not objective observers of reality or or uh, encoding or memories of reality. Anyway, so let's look at so secure attached people. So everyone has problem with memories, but securely attached people have the least problem with memories in general. Avoidant people have difficulty remembering relationship relevant information. A lot of research to find this. So it, it's pretty easy to study this. So all you have to do is uh, bring a bunch of people into the lab, and then you ask them, uh, you, you, you measure their attachment style, and then you ask them just to recall as many childhood memories as they can. Or um, do you remember your uh, this event in your life or something? And avoidant people actually have a much harder time remembering they also have a hard – not only do they have a hard time remember the, remembering their childhood, avoidant people, but they also have a hard time remembering things in the lab. So in lab experiments, they'll say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you 10 words, and I just want you to remember them. And then like a half an hour later, they, they ask, how many of those 10 words do you remember? Well, a lot of research, Edelstein 2016, Fraley et al. 2017, and blah, 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 many other studies, have found that avoidant people – have a harder time remembering those those words, you know, those those memory tasks in the lab, they have a harder time remembering. Isn't that interesting? I find that to be fascinating. So the idea goes is that when we're young and we experience mistreatment and we adopt the coping style of avoidance, one of the things that facilitates that avoidance is to fail to encode memory and to not develop very good abilities to retrieve memories. So not only would you not encode the memory very well, but you actually wouldn't, you actually have a harder time uh, retrieving the memory because when, just as a example, let's say that your uh, parents are depressed and they're not paying, they're consistently not paying a lot of attention to you. You develop an avoidant attachment style. Well, there are times when you're going to feel quite alone and you're going to be quite in despair at a very young age without any respite. You're going to be like three years old and just feeling like you're utterly alone. You, you know, you'll be crying and you'll just feel like there's no one there. There's no one there that will help you. And you're very upset about it. Well, in order to cope and move on with your day or to wake up the next morning and function, it's very helpful to forget what just happened. And so the ability to forget and the ability to just not re to, to, to not only not encode, but also have difficulty retrieving facilitates your well-being. So I find this to be most 
poignant or noticeable when I am teaching my family of origin class. So my family of origin class, I will – it's first quarter students in my program and it's usually you know 10 to 16 students. And I ask them – the whole quarter is about them investigating their childhood. In this class, they learn about theory. Half the class is learning about how to apply Bowen, object relations, Naj, um, you know, other family systems ideas. The other half of the quarter, the other half of the class is them discovering their own vulnerabilities and their own counter-transference issues so that they can move on to the program and, and be somewhat aware of it. And what I find is consistently there is a mixture of attachment styles among the student body because I read all these papers and I interact with them throughout the quarter, so I, I kind of get to know them. And there's always at least one or two students who will tell me that they just don't remember much about their childhood. Or when they do remember their childhood, they're just like, I just remember it being really good. And what I always say to those people is, okay, there's two possibilities. Either your childhood was really good, and God bless you, that's great. And that if you think about it a little longer, you'll start to discover there were some things that were not so great. But overall, things were great growing up. The other possibility is that you are avoiding attachment and that you have learned how to forget. And although your life was not overtly horrible, like no one abused you or anything, there were moments in which you were neglected or consistently kept at arm's length, which hurt your feelings and made you feel like you couldn't get your needs met, which led to you developing a mechanism in your brain of denial. And so when I ask you to remember your childhood, you actually can't retrieve those memories. And it's up to you as a student to figure that out because I'm not your therapist. And so um, I just find that to be fascinating that you can measure differences in the in the ability for someone to remember something and it's related to their attachment style, uh, which is developed as a coping strategy, right? It's so interesting. And this explains why some clients are like this. You know, a big part of therapy is people coming into your office and talking about their memories, whether it be their childhood memories or their memories from the other night. And some of you the clinicians out there might have experienced some clients who have a, just have a really hard time remembering something and they also have a hard time telling this, telling stories that make any sense to you. So I think this sort of explains some of that. Now, what about preoccupied people? Preoccupied people are more likely to have false memories. They're more likely to distort their perceptions or they're more likely to distort their memories after they're encoded. So both as the memory goes in during the experience, they're more likely to distort it and record it wrong. And they're also more likely to retrieve it in a distorted manner. Uh, a lot of research looking into this as well. And there are just so many examples of this that I, that I can think of in uh, my experience with people. Like I'll be talking with a couple, and if one of them or both of them are preoccupied, they will sit down on the couch and they will tell me a story about a conflict they had recently. And they'll both tell me a story that – and as I'm listening to the story, whenever I'm listening to a conflict event between a couple, I'm trying to piece together what I would have seen if I was there. I can never really fully accept one person's story over the other. 
I'm always trying to think, oh, there's some kind of third story here that I can piece together if I really pay attention to what they're saying and if I really know these, these people's tendencies. Well, people high on the preoccupied spectrum will tell stories to me that are uh, extremely different from each other. So if I have two preoccupied people, they will tell me stories that are impossibly different. Uh, you know, you'll hear one person, they'll, they'll tell a story like, so I said this, and then he said that, and then he did that, and then he did this, and then he tells me a story, and he'll be like, um, none of that is true. Let me tell you what happened. And then I did this, and she did that, and blah, blah, blah. And what's so interesting is they're both looking at each other like, why are you lying right now? And they're quite upset because they, they think the other person is lying or doing something weird. And I would have a in my earlier career, and to some extent, even lately, I've always figured out like, why is this happening? Now that I understand that attachment style affects the way our brain develops and affects the way our memory uh, procedures are developed, that it it all makes sense now. Again, because if you grew up with mistreatment when you're growing up, then you're you realize so. This is my hypothesis, is that you're one year old and you have very inconsistent parenting from your parents. And you figure out that in order to get love and security from your parents, you have to really game the system. You have to really pay attention to them because sometimes you get love and sometimes you don't. And so you're, you're really paying attention to them. And one of the ways you learn how to, how to manipulate other people to make them love you which isn't a bad manipulation. It's a justified manipulation, but it's a manipulation. One of the ways you realize how to manipulate other people to love you is to draw attention to yourself, even if it's not exactly truthful. So you're two years old and you fall down and you're not actually that hurt. You just sort of stumble, you trip, you fall down and you're not actually that hurt. You're just like, you're just like, uh, I thought that was going to hurt. That was kind of scary. I thought I was going to cry. But I think I'll be okay. I'll bounce back. This is fine. Well, if, you're, if you've already developed or if you're developing a preoccupied attachment style, you fall down and you're like, oh, this is my opportunity to get some love and attention because if I fall down, I've noticed that if I start crying, my parent is slightly more likely to pay attention to me. So I fall down and then I just start wailing. Oh, my God. Oh, I'm in so much pain. And then the parents come over. And they start to uh, tend to me, and I feel loved, and I, I played my cards right in that moment. Well, in order to cope with this very frequent activity of manipulation, it's harder to muscle your brain to think of that, and it's easier if you just naturally come to those conclusions. Like, I'm falling down. It's much easier if your brain is just wired as such that you interpret that event much worse. So you fall down. So you do this a number of times when you're a kid, and eventually your brain goes, uh, you know, let's just skip your cognitive mind, your conscious mind. Let's just go straight to the source. Anything, anytime a bad thing happens to you, let's times that by 10 because that is more likely to produce an emotional response from you that is very communicative to your parents, which is much more likely to get them to love you. And so this, there's this behavior system of reinforcement for that brain process. Well, fast forward to that person to the age of 55, 
and they're in a fight with their spouse, well, they're going, their brain isn't going to check with their conscious mind on this. They're just going to go ahead and amp that up by 10 because they learned that when they amp it up by 10, they're more likely to get love and attention. But the problem is at this age in their life, it actually doesn't work that way. When the preoccupied person amps, you know, automatically amps it up by 10 and they uh, start to express themselves emotionally, their spouse is going to be like, why are you freaking out? It wasn't that big of a deal. The other thing is, is that the preoccupied person is going to tell a story like, and then you said this, and then you said this, and then you did that, and then you did that. And your spouse is going to be like, none of that, none of those things happened. And as a therapist, I've run into this. I've had preoccupied clients accuse me of things that I know never happened. One example that I always find to be just so revealing about the way the brain works is I was working with a couple and um, the wife and I had a, uh, what I considered to be kind of a brief relationship rupture. I knew that she had borderline, but um, I stepped on a landmine and she was hurt, which, you know, is a normal part of working with borderline people. No, no big deal. She came in the next session and she said, I'm really upset at you. And I said, okay, you know, let's talk about it. And she said, well, um, I can't believe that you said, uh, you know, and then she said what she thought I said. And it was something like atrocious. It was something like, I can't believe that you told me that I am a stupid little baby. It was something like that. It was something that bad. And I, and I said, whoa, you, th that's what your memory is, is you think I told you that you're a stupid little baby. And she's like, yeah, I can't, I can't, I cannot believe that you said that. I mean, you're a therapist for crying out loud. How do you say such a thing to a client? And I'm like, uh, I never said that. Usually with borderline clients, I won't get into an argument about what happened. I'll just apologize. But in this instance, I was like, I don't think I can let this one go because if they walk away from this with the memory that I told them that they were a stupid little baby, I don't think we're ever going to recover from this. I have to get them to realize that that did not happen. Again, usually I don't get into that kind of conversation because it's not meaningful or helpful and not the point. Usually, you know, the clients just want you to apologize, which I did. But then I said, so I just want to review what your memory is because I have to tell you it's wrong. And here's why it's wrong. I've never even thought of you that way. And I don't think I've ever thought that statement about anybody. So even though I don't have a perfect memory and it's possible, I don't remember everything I said to you in that session, I will bet you a billion dollars. I did not say that phrase to you because I've never even thought that phrase about somebody, particularly a client and particularly you. Uh, that is that sort of phrase, stupid little baby doesn't even cross my brain. I don't see the world that way. I totally understand why you're sensitive to things, and I'm very compassionate about it and would never think such a thing. Even if someone really pushed me, I wouldn't think that. It's just not – maybe when I was seven years old, I might think something. something I don't know. And she's like, um, well, I'm sorry, but you did say that. And she – if you hooked her up to a lie detector test, she would have, she would have passed. Well, her husband is sitting right there and her husband's like, um, honey, he did not say that. He did not say that phrase to you. And so I can't remember because it was a long time ago, but I can't remember how it resolved. But I'm pretty sure the wife eventually was like 50-50 on it. I think she was like, well, I, I remember it. Like 
it was yesterday and I can, I can hear you saying those words in my head, but I hear you and my husband saying that, and it seems pretty convincing. So maybe I do remember it wrong, but she never really let go of it. I remember that. So that's an example of a preoccupied person who developed a neurological process early in life to cope with something that resulted in a complete distortion of reality and a very confident distortion of reality. So as I said, whatever I said, and this is sort of a window into preoccupation, is whatever I said, even though it was probably um, you know, nothing close to that, she heard me calling her, she's a stupid little baby. And that was the memory that she recorded. And then later on, she remembered it as such, because that's how it felt to her. It felt like I was saying she was a stupid little baby, even though I was probably doing something like, um, I, I don't remember, but I was probably confronting her mildly on something, telling her that maybe she needs to um, not blow up at her husband or something. I was probably, you know, that could be a something along those lines. I'd be like, well, so you guys are coming to me to reduce your conflict. So I'm going to suggest to the husband that he increases warmth. And I'm going to suggest to the wife that you try to decrease your angry reactivity. Because I think those two things going forward in this week are going to facilitate your goals in therapy, which is to reduce your conflict and to improve your relationship. What the wife heard was a criticism, which is very threatening to a preoccupied, highly preoccupied person, which their brain distorted, her brain distorted into a completely different memory, which was me saying that she's a stupid little baby. Totally fascinating. And again, when you look at the research in the lab, they find this to be true, that preoccupied people, they will remember things very confidently in the lab, but they're more likely to just be wrong. So Avoidant people don't remember things, uh, and preoccupied tend to remember things in a distorted manner, which is just so interesting. And this is why we have the word borderline, because when in the past, in the mid-20th century, clinicians were observing this behavior of clients coming to therapy claiming that they remember certain things being said or done. It's often a transference issue. And the clinicians were like, you are delusional. That never happened. You remember things in a very distorted way. That kind of sounds like psychosis. It's kind of, it's in the direction of schizophrenia. And so they called it borderline because it was borderline schizophrenia. And you could just say that it was, it looked like schizophrenia because they have a memory distortion issue that's influenced by their interpretation and sensitivity to abandonment and criticism. While we're on the topic of memory, let's talk about opioids and memory. And by opioids, I mean endogenous opioids like endorphins, natural opioids in the brain. So as the parent and the child gaze into each other's eyes early in life, endogenous opioids such as endorphins can be triggered in both the parent and the child. This, uh, this process is associated with good feelings of safety, pleasure, and general well-being. And this process creates memory networks in the brain. So it, it's interesting to really walk yourself through that process. So we have behavior, which creates 
a emotional response and then potentially the release of endorphins, which give us a morphine-like experience of goodwill and relaxation, which encodes it in a very memory-like fashion. So uh, the point of all this is to train us to do certain things. So we're looking into our mother's eyes and we get a warm feeling and then we get endorphin rush and we and our body relaxes and then our body uh, our brain creates a memory network that associates all of these things that we're seeing and perceiving the the feeling the cl- the clothing that your mother is wearing the way her eyes look the way her hands look the way her hair looks the music that's playing the food that you're eating the 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 clothing that you're wearing all these things get encoded together to promote motivation in the future to repeat that process. And so all of this becomes a part of our working model of our parents and of attachment in general. So, you know, I've been talking about working models, but I haven't really gone into detail on like all the sorts of things that can be in one's working model. Um, You can, obviously your parents are in your working model of other people, but also everything that's associated with them the the glasses the you know the spectacles they wear that they're the timbre of their voice and if they're mean to you then all that kind of gets shoved in there too and when we're lonely these memory networks are engaged which affects how we feel about our loneliness so if someone has memories of a trustworthy and responsive parent then they will predict that others will respond well to them and they will reach out to other people when they're lonely so they, you know, their memory networks and their endorphin system and all that kind of stuff associate other people with goodness. And so when they're lonely, they will, they'll be motivated to reach out to them. But if someone has bad memories of attachments and, and they have a lot of bad associations and a lack of endorphins associated with other people, then when they become uh, lonely, their working model is such that they can't really predict that other people are going to respond well to them. So they don't really reach out or they reach out in a manipulative fashion or they reach out in an anxious fashion. Well, all that stress leads to more loneliness and demoralization. You know, people can just become demoralized, which can actually lead to suicide. You know, that thwarted belongingness, right? And that hopelessness that sets in. It could also lead to resentment and anger towards other people because there's, there's this general sense like how come everyone else has other people, but I'm being treated like this. Why am I so lonely all the time? You can even become vengeful in this experience. So it's important to, th- I think it's useful and important to think about attachment and working models within the endorphin brain processes. Addiction is a similar process. You drink alcohol that releases endogenous opioids in your brain, which hacks into our normal process of attachment and reward. So normally, the endorphins are there to reward us with attachment behaviors, attachment feelings, and other kinds of it, other kinds of behaviors. But addiction, like alcohol, hacks into that system and releases endorphins just by drinking. So you're not actually attaching, you're not actually achieving anything in life. The alcohol or the cocaine or whatever just instantly gives you that endorphin rush and that hacks into that system of memory and association, which causes you to want to do it more and more and more. 
um, similar with other um, you know compulsive behaviors, gambling, restricting, cutting, all these kinds of things. So it's, inter- it's interesting to think about compulsion as a hacked system of attachment, endorphin, and memory. I think that's interesting to, to think about. Also, I thought I would talk a little bit about some research about oxytocin and memory and attachment. So a study by Wagner et al., 2018, they found that when you give oxytocin, so oxytocin, again, is the, the love um, neuropeptide when we are in love or when we're attaching to our parents or our children, our, uh, the neuropeptide of oxytocin is released and facilitates more attachment. It also has to do with like orgasm and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so when these people, so you can actually give people oxytocin. There's like a spray that you can put in people's nose and it'll end up in the brain if I remember that procedure right. So when you give oxytocin to avoidant people, their memory improved. This makes sense, right? So again, avoidant people avoided memories because they were, it, was, it, it helped them to avoid relationships, which helped them to avoid being hurt. So they're in a frequent state of just like, ah, let's just stay away from people. But if you put oxytocin into their brain artificially, they're more likely to feel connected to other people and therefore that need to turn off their memory uh, processes is no longer needed, and so they're better able to remember things. However, when you give oxytocin, Wagner et al. 2018, when they gave oxytocin to preoccupied people, their memory was actually worse. And here's my speculation, is that, and you know, the, the speculation about the avoidant people was also a speculation, not the finding, but my speculation as to why that is. Here's my speculation as to why preoccupied people, when they're given oxytocin, their memory gets worse. Preoccupied people associate closeness with danger. And so when you give them the oxytocin, they, they get anxious, which makes it harder for them to remember things. I don't know. It's just hard to tell. So this next bit, just to give you an idea of how technical things are, I'm going to read what I would consider to be kind of a, a moderate technical statement about uh, you know, neurological research and attachment and, and the brain. <laughs> um, Negative correlations were found between attachment avoidance and the volumes of the left middle temporal gyrus and the right parahippocampal gyrus and between attachment anxiety and the right ventral anterior cingulate volume. (laughs) So it's just like, what? (laughs) I didn't realize there was a right parahippocampal gyrus. I didn't know there was a left parahippocampal gyrus. And what the hell is a gyrus? (laughs) I mean, what's the difference between a gyrus and a cingulate? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, some of this stuff I get, like left left middle temporal gyrus. Well, I get left middle temporal, you know, the temporal lobe and left middle. I kind of get that, but gyrus, well, you know. Anyway, so uh, right right middle occipital gyrus in women, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so things get pretty specific, and I know enough about that to know that I shouldn't talk about it because I'll sound stupid. Just another couple of points about biology that I found in the research literature. Mistreatment and insecure attachment seems to be associated with inflammation in some people. Uh, if you're familiar with such things, inflammation can be associated with a lot of bad things for psychology and biology. So uh, having insecure attachment, being mistreated as a child can 
lead to inflammation, which makes sense, right? More cortisol, more stress, more inflammation, um, which obviously can lead to a lot of physical problems, a lot of uh, like weight gain and uh, autoimmune problems and all that kind of stuff. And no discussion on attachment in the brain would be sufficient if I didn't at least mention mirror neurons. Mirror neurons are uh, essentially the brain process that is involved when we're interacting with other people. Our brain create th – this is, again, my very rudimentary understanding of it. Um, so to put it in concrete terms in the lab, uh, they – this is a story that my professor told me years ago, so I'm not quite sure if this is accurate, but this is how I remember it. They had a monkey, a primate, hooked up to a brain scan. And when the lab researcher reached out with their hand to do something uh, toward the monkey, they found that the brain region in the monkey that had to do with the monkey's right hand lit up or the mirroring hand, maybe the left hand or whatever. So in other words, the monkey was watching the human move their arm and the monkey's brain fired in a way as if their own arm was moving even though they didn't move their arm. So the idea is, is that when we're watching other people, we're paying attention to them, our neurons fire in response to what they're doing as if we're doing it. And there's a lot of different speculations as to why this would happen. Uh, one is that we're trying to we're trying to conceptualize what's happening in the outside world, and one of the ways that we can kind of do it is make a model of it in our own neurological processes. I actually don't even know if this is a speculation that brain scientists have, or if they did, and I was told it, and I, I don't remember being told of it, and I'm just coming up with it because it's in the back of my memory somewhere, or I'm just making it up. I don't know, but. Another uh, th reason why we might have evolved this process is because it, it facilitates empathy. It is important to for us to be able to mentalize and to know what's going on in other people's minds. And so when we see our children or our loved ones crying, it's important for us to know what they're going through. And one of the ways that you can really know and feel – the, what's, what someone else is going through is you actually – your brain sort of syncs up with their brain by watching their behavior and you feel the exact same feeling. So everyone has had this experience when you're watching a movie and uh, it's the climax of the movie and the, the main character starts to cry. A lot of people in the audience will start crying. When you're at a funeral memorial and someone's giving a eulogy and they start to cry, people in the audience start crying. It's not like people in the audience are suddenly sad. It's because mirror neurons, so you know, if potentially, it's always hard to really make firm statements about the brain because it's, it's just hard to know. But the idea goes is that you're watching your father give a eulogy and he starts to cry. Your brain evolved to really pay attention, particularly to people that we love and we're attached to. Uh, to make sure that we know what they're feeling because if we know what they're feeling, then we can respond not only socially to them to like make sure we're, we have a good relationship, but also we can make sure that we can protect them. You know, as, as parents out there, when your child falls down and hurts themselves, uh, you feel the pain too, right? 
Or you might even feel this pain just when uh, strangers fall down. I, I feel this all the time. Like there are YouTube videos of people, you know, crashing on their skateboard. And when they, when they crash, like I feel it in my body. I can actually feel the pain like in my body. Those are mirror neurons, so to speak, that are firing to let us know what the other person is feeling so that we can respond and attune to them. Because it's very important that we attune to each other and pay attention to each other. So I, I could have all that wrong because I know enough about the brain to know I don't know that much, but I'm pretty sure I got most of that right. If I didn't, let me know. Okay, so let's skim my notes and look at other things that might be worth talking about. So let's talk about perfectionism briefly. I did a deep dive on perfectionism, and one of the things that I discovered in the literature was that there are two main types of perfectionism, in my opinion, which is adaptive perfectionism and maladaptive perfectionism. So adaptive perfectionism is uh, healthy perfectionism and can be associated with high self-esteem. And uh, essentially what I found – or uh, I, I'm not sure if uh, I speculated this or furthered other people's speculations that when you have high standards for whatever reason for your children or a child develops high standards for themselves, that in and of itself, that that foundation of perfectionism is not in and of its, its – we don't know if it's going to be healthy or unhealthy yet. The difference is self-esteem. So when you have – um, self-esteem along with high standards, either imposed on you or self-generated, then you seem to do fine. You actually uh, enjoy activities that you can engage in, quote-unquote, perfectionism. In the deep dive on perfectionism also, there's a lot of um, different definitions of perfectionism, definitions of different kinds of behaviors that could be considered perfectionistic. Like some perfectionism behaviors would be uh, me doing this podcast when I um, first started making this podcast, I didn't really know what I was doing. So I would sh- – it was video back then. So I'd shoot a lot of video and record a lot of audio and um, get a lot of guests. And then I would get all the footage on my computer and then I would meticulously edit it down to something that I thought was really good or good – or not really good, but like not really bad. I was trying to – published the least bad episodes I could. And one could say I was being a, I was being a perfectionist because I um, throughout the entire production process, I was very meticulous about the whole thing, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. So there's that kind of perfectionism. And then there's another kind of perfectionism, which is essentially compulsive behavior and obsessive behavior around needing your desk to be perfect or needing your house to be perfect that kind of thing. So it depends on what we're talking about. But anyway, how it relates to attachment is that when we have secure attachment, that is actually related to adaptive perfectionism. So the path from secure attachment to adaptive perfectionism, uh, it would seem would be that when you are securely attached to your parents, you develop better self-esteem. You have a better self-working model, right? And you have a better other working model. So when you have high standards, you're less likely to see it in a negative way. People with low self-esteem or a bad self-working model or a bad working model of others, 
they will have these high standards for themselves, but they'll also feel as though they can't achieve them and they resent those high standards or the high standards kind of crush them and make them feel ashamed that they'll never actually achieve that. Or they'll feel like there's an an imposition from outside of them, uh, an untrustworthy other who is imposing high standards on them unfairly, which obviously they're hurt and would resent. Uh, so uh, secure attachment, and which leads to self-esteem, which combined with high standards results in adaptive perfectionism, and without secure attachment, without that self-esteem, then maladaptive perfectionism uh, emerges. Okay, so let's talk about the big five. So the big five personality uh, uh, traits, we have extroversion, agreeableness, conscientiousness, neuroticism, and openness, the big five personality. Uh, so how is uh, attachment associated with these things? If you're securely attached or insecurely attached, do they correlate with the big five? There's been a fair amount of research on this. It's pretty easy to research. So um, let's look at that. So there's a lot I could say, and there's a lot of research, but um, in general, the consensus seems to be that when you are securely attached – when you have a secure attachment style, it is associated with extroversion, which is um, defined as being sociable, being active, being assertive, assertive meaning um, standing up for yourself, but also not bulldozing other people, and positive emotionality. So extroversion and secure attachment go uh, are associated. Secure attachment is also associated with agreeableness. So agreeableness is when you're altruistic, when you have a tender mind, when you care about other people, when you trust other people, and when you're modest. So that makes a lot of sense there too. It's also associated with conscientiousness. Conscientiousness is when you engage in task or uh, task-directed behavior or goal-directed behavior, such as organizing or prioritizing tasks. Conscientiousness is... The, uh, the ability to plan ahead, the ability to reflect, the ability to think about things, the ability to be responsible, um, thoughtful, that kind of thing. You can the, – the ability to slow down and kind of evaluate things, conscientiousness. Uh, secure attachment is negatively associated with neuroticism. Neuroticism is negative emotionality such as being anxious, nervous, sad, and tense. Makes sense, right? That if you're securely attached, you're less likely to feel anxious and sad. And it all, and it, but it's not, it has not been found to be correlated with openness. So for whatever reason, openness, which is defined as being creative, uh, being original, being imaginative, uh, being open to new experiences, um, for whatever reason, that's not associated with secure attachment, which kind of is interesting. You would think that secure attachment would be correlated with openness, but not, uh, at least according to many studies. So let's talk about personality disorders. I've already talked about personality disorders quite a bit, but just to um, highlight some of the research that has looked into associating personality disorders with different types of insecure attachment, uh, let's look at that. But also keep in mind that this is hard to study. One, uh, because it's not studied very often, but two, because evaluating for personality disorders is kind of hard. 
as you might know from other episodes, it's really hard to detect a personality disorder very quickly. So you'd really have to work with someone for a while. Plus, the, contra- the construct of personality disorders are pretty um, squishy concepts. One person would see narcissism, another person would see borderline, another person would see histrionic, another person would say that personality disorders don't exist at all. So it's kind of hard, but I just thought I'd present some of the research that I found. Preoccupied, preoccupied attachment is associated with borderline, which I've been talking about pretty frequently. It's also associated with paranoid personality disorder, which makes sense. It's also interestingly associated with avoidant personality disorder, which doesn't make a lot of sense. It's associated with dependent, which makes sense. It's, a, it's uh, associated with obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, which is interesting, and, of course, histrionic. Avoidant attachment style is associated with narcissistic personality disorder, which, of course, makes sense, and avoidant personality disorder, which, of course, makes sense, and antisocial and schizotypal, which also make a lot of sense. Disorganized attachment style is associated with avoidant, antisocial, schizotypal, and borderline. But again, I suspect that if you actually are working with people, um, these are just trends, and it's just interesting to to see those connections in the research, but you really just have to evaluate people on a case-by-case basis. For example, I've worked with people who have both avoidant attachment style but are also quite borderline or preoccupied attachment style and don't have any personality disorder. So, you know, it really just kind of depends. So we haven't talked about reactive attachment disorder yet, which some of you might be thinking, why haven't I talked about it? I haven't talked about it yet because I find that, and I may have said this earlier, it's been a, it's been a long journey recording these deep dives, so it's hard to remember what I've talked about thus far and what I've just thought in my head. But I have avoided talking about reactive attachment disorder because I find that a lot of clinicians, when we talk about attachment conditions or attachment issues with people, uh, particularly kids, uh, clinicians will often go, oh, reactive attachment disorder. And I find that to be annoying to me because attachment issues are probably present in all of your child clients and in all of your adult clients. And reactive attachment disorder is really quite specific. It's similar to the issue with PTSD. It's likely that a vast majority of your clients, child and and adults, have been traumatized in some way, relationally or in other ways, and have effects from that trauma. Yet, when people don't really understand trauma, they'll just jump to PTSD. It's possible that the person has PTSD, but there are many other conditions that can result from trauma, some of which aren't in the DSM. And in today's world, I just find that it's annoying that people just go straight to the DSM as if it is the sole list of conditions that are available to our understanding of human beings, which is really quite silly. But anyway, reactive attachment disorder obviously has to do with attachment, so let's get into it. DSM-4 had uh, one type of reactive attachment, but there were just different subtypes. But in DSM-5, they actually broke them up into two different types, which I think is fine. I don't have an opinion on it. Um, So they have reactive attachment disorder, and they have disinhibited social engagement disorder. Disinhibited social engagement disorder. Yeah, pretty descriptive. Reactive attachment disorder, we would think of them as avoidant attachment 
these people, um, these children, they have a failure to seek comfort from other people. They avoid eye contact. They have a, uh, the DSM calls it a frozen watchfulness, meaning that the kid will kind of look frozen while they're just watching people around them, like they're sort of detached, like they're observing the world. Hypervigilance and unpredictable reunion responses. Unpredictable reunion responses. Doesn't that sound, you know, in the, when the caregiver is reunited with the child, there's unpredictable responses. So doesn't that sound more like disorganized? You know, disorganized people are more unpredictable. So reactive attachment disorder could be avoided, but it also could be uh, um, disorganized. Uh, Disinhibited social engagement disorder is the other type of attachment disorder in the DSM, and it is, I would say, associated with preoccupied and disorganized. This is seeking comfort from strangers, indiscriminate friendliness, demanding behavior, attention-seeking behavior, minimal checking in, minimal checking in unfamiliar settings, minimal checking in, minimal checking in unfamiliar settings. I think I know what they're getting at, but maybe my notes are bad. Uh, Cuddling with strangers, asking personal questions of strangers, invading social boundaries. If you work with kids, particularly kids with attachment issues, you've seen this before. I worked with a lot of kids like this. I, I had a kid once who was uh, separated from her mother, and she never knew her father, but she was she was separated from her mother for a couple of years because her mother lost her child due to her substance use issues. And I worked with the mother and the four-year-old upon reunification. And this cute little four-year-old girl would as soon as I walked in the door, she would start cuddling with me and uh, she would um, do so in some coy ways or some overt ways. And it was cute, but it was notable in that she had disinhibited social engagement disorder. The idea goes again, that when you are denied uh, attachment figures, you basically have two different choices available to you unless you're um, so terrified that you just have a disorganized response. But if you could actually organize a response, you have two choices. You can either avoid, right, which is reactive attachment disorder, which is like you're just, you just avoid everybody and you don't um, respond to other people. Or you just become available for attachment to everybody. Another way of thinking about this is that they are stuck in an earlier form of attachment, which is indicative of someone when they're like four months old. Remember when I talked about the different stages of attachment display, uh, very young infants, zero to four, six months old, tend to uh, not discriminate between caregivers. And so it could be said that if you have arrested development in that area because you were mistreated or neglected or abandoned, then you will retain that indiscriminate attach, attaching to anybody who you deem worthy of paying attention to, whether you know them well or not. So that's um, those are the two DSM conditions. Well, how do, how do they relate exactly to our language when we're talking about avoidant and preoccupied? Well, let's look at rates because maybe that'll help us out. So a study, uh, one study found that 1% of people with, so this one study looked at 200, 211 people who are 18 months old, 
and they found you know just a general swath of the general population and they found that 1% of these children had an attachment disorder just 1%. Another study looked at six, over 1600 6 to 8 year old children in the UK. So these are you know primary school kids probably second third grade fourth grade and these kids only 1% qualified for a DSM-5 attachment disorder. Another study in the UK, they looked at adopted children, 60 adopted children, age 6 to 11. This is K et al. K et al. in, in 2016. And they found that 49% had disinhibited social engagement disorder. So isn't that interesting? In the general population, 1% have an attachment disorder, whether that be um, you know, reactive attachment or disinhibited. So presumably 0.5% of the world has reactive attachment and 0.5% have disinhibited. But when we look at adopted children, half of them have only half of them have disinhibited and presumably a number of others have reactive attachment. So it seems that most adopted kids have an attachment disorder from the DSM, which makes a lot of sense. So when we think about the prevalence of avoidant attachment in children and preoccupied attachment, usually it's at about 20% for each, 15 to 20%. So about you know, 30 to 40% of children and adults have insecure attachment, whether that's avoidant, uh, disorganized, or preoccupied, whereas only about 1% of people, children, have one of the reactive attachment disorder you know, where they qualify for it. So what does that tell us? Well, that tells us that reactive attachment disorder and disinhibited social engagement disorder are extreme uh, presentations of avoidant, preoccupied, disorganized attachment uh, styles. So that's one way to think about it, um, is that when you are, uh, so you, so that you have a spectrum, right? So you can be mildly avoidant. Uh, you can have, you can have mild avoidant attachment style, meaning that you probably have some secure attachment style uh, qualities. You can have moderate avoidant attachment style, or you can have, uh, and then you can have, ex- you know, severe, and then you can have like extreme avoidant attachment style, which would probably qualify you for reactive attachment disorder. Uh, similarly, you could have mild preoccupied attachment style, meaning that you also have some qualities of secure attachment. You have moderate preoccupied attachment style, and then at the upper, upper end of preoccupied attachment is where we find people with disinhibited social engagement disorder. And again, I just want to read disinhibited and highlight how similar it is to adult preoccupied attachment style. Seeking comfort from strangers. So this is um, this is somewhat indicative of preoccupation, but uh, the analogy to adults would be that adults with preoccupied attachment style tend to really latch on to new friendships and new relationships. Indiscriminate friendliness, demanding behavior. So a lot of people who have preoccupied attachment style, borderline people, histrionic people, will tend to come across as being demanding. Attention-seeking behavior, which is uh, quite common for histrionic. It's the central feature. Um, Cuddliness with strangers. That's similar to um, being very black and white with your relationships, being very intense with your relationships, even when they're brand new. 
asking personal questions of strangers. I have found that to be absolutely uh, the case when it comes to preoccupied adults. They will tend to ask me more personal questions uh, as clients. Um, it's fine when they do that. I, you know, I, it doesn't bother me, but um, it's notable. So um, those are the two diagnoses in the DSM. There was a proposal for the DSM-5 to actually include another disorder that actually is related to attachment, which I was really upset when they didn't include it, but I thought I would talk about it here. It's called Developmental Trauma Disorder, and it has been researched and put forth by a number of different researchers, namely DeAndrea Ford, um, Van der Kolk, these people uh, from the from about 2005 until the DSM-5 was published. I really like this. Um, as I've talked about already, clinicians often use when we're talking about trauma or attachment disruption, they often will go to PTSD, depression, generalized anxiety, reactive attachment, borderline ADHD, bipolar, separation anxiety, um, uh, oppositional defiant disorder. But for many clients, it doesn't really in encapsulate the real condition that you observe in the client. And I think that developmental trauma disorder often uh, is a broader category that captures a lot of people that uh, aren't captured by these common uh, diagnoses that are in the DSM. Uh, so let's go over the proposed criteria for developmental trauma disorder. Criterion A is exposure to developmental trauma, uh, both types, meaning you have to have experienced interpersonal victimization, like being abused, and also a disruption in attachment. So abuse, and disruption in attachment. And it has to be pretty significant and it has to be over a number of a span of time. It can't just be like one. Criterion B, you have to have three of the following. Emotional dysregulation, somatic dysregulation, impaired access to emotion or somatic feelings, or impaired verbal mediation of emotion or somatic feelings. So essentially emotional or physical issues related to emotions. Criterion C is attention or behavioral problems, attention or behavior problems. So you need at least two of the following. Attention bias toward or away from threat, impaired self-protection, maladaptive self-soothing, non-suicidal self-injury, impaired ability to initiate or sustain goal-directed behavior. So these are um, kind of a catch-all for basically behavioral maladaption, maladaptive behavior. And the last criterion here is current relational or self-dysregulation. Two of the following are required. Self-loathing or uh, you know, viewing the self as damaged. Attachment insecurity or disorganization. Betrayal-based relational schemas. So you think that um, everything is a betrayal and you're very sensitive to betrayal. Reactive verbal or physical aggression impaired psychological boundaries, impaired interpersonal empathy. So this developmental trauma disorder is, if you, if you described, if you presented this, and these researchers did, to clinicians who actually work with kids, you would find that a lot of them would say, oh my God, that fits a lot of the kids that I work with in a much more precise and accurate way than when I apply reactive attachment or oppositional defiant or ADHD or bipolar or PTSD or generalized anxiety or a um, 
adjustment disorder, these kinds of things. And it's much more in line with the reality of the condition, which is that, you know, so imagine you were abused or you take someone who was abused and they were abandoned by people and they have a lot of uh, issues from that. They have trouble with emotional regulation. They have non-suicidal self-injury. They have, um, they're not very good in school. They have a hard time paying attention. They have attachment insecurity and they're aggressive sometimes and they also have a hard time with empathy, but they're not psychopathic. So that makes a lot of sense, right? Due to trauma and due to the attachment disruption, you have all these effects. Well, if you had all those things, the developmental trauma disorder would encapsulate that whole thing. Without develop, developmental trauma disorder, people are they, they have to go to all these other diagnoses to apply. So they would say, okay, well, they've been traumatized, but they don't really have PTSD because they don't they're not triggered to you know much distress. You know, they don't have all those symptoms because PTSD is really quite specific. They don't have generalized anxiety because they're not really in the they're not really quintessentially anxious. They don't they're not really depressed. I guess they kind of have reactive attachment, but react, reactive attachment is so specific and it's really quite severe. I can't diagnose them with borderline yet. I guess they're kind of ADHD, but I I don't think this is an organic problem with their executive function. I think they're uh, they have a condition that's based on the trauma they went through. Um, they don't really have separation anxiety because they're not really being separated from their caregivers anymore. That was a long time ago. I guess I would apply oppositional defiant disorder in this situation. So. That's the choice that a lot of clinicians are looking at. They're like, well, what diagnosis is closest to this condition that isn't lying, that isn't fraud, um, and and just pick that one? Whereas if you have the developmental trauma disorder, it would solve all the problems. But if, and and it's totally observed. These researchers found that to you know to be a very solid construct that is shown with actual people and should be in the DSM, but the authors of the DSM deemed it unfit. Okay, moving on with this kind of grab bag situation here. Crime, I won't go into a full talk on this because I, I don't have the time, but crime has been found to be associated with insecure attachment. Uh, Fallen and Minnis in 2010 found that young offenders most had experienced maltreatment and neglect, and most were likely insecure attachment. There's a lot of research in this area. Uh, I talked about this before, but I just want to highlight that, that if we as a society did more to help children become securely attached to their parents, we're much more likely to see much less crime and drug addiction leading to crime and blah, blah, blah. So I'm writing a book on grief, and I've written about attachment style and grief in that book. But just to briefly highlight uh, the main findings that are um, worthy of mentioning, which is that when you are securely attached and, say, your spouse dies or your parents die, you will go through a lot of really difficult feelings because that's a very difficult situation to go with, go through. And your grief will never end, and it will come in waves, and... That's just how things are, and if you're healthy, you'll get support. And if you have secure attachment style, then you will go through those uh, experiences with much less psychopathology and much more um, resiliency. Whereas if you have insecure attachment style, 
you have some you may have some difficulties, particularly if you're preoccupied. So when you're avoidant attachment style, it actually helps you to get through the grief because you have a, a style of attaching which is distant. And so when people die, you're not really as affected pragmatically or emotionally. So uh, avoidant attachment style people tend to fare better uh, from loss, whereas pre preoccupied people and disorganized people have a really hard time with loss because they're much more dependent on others. Um, they're much more focused on these other people. And so when they pass or when you lose something like a job, like I've seen people, preoccupied people get fired from their job and will have tremendous amount of symptoms, whereas avoidant people are just like, eh, we'll fuck it, I'll, I'll just move on. This doesn't mean that avoidant people are healthy uh, because they're they're gaining their avoidant attachment style. They gain something, which is resilience through grief and loss, but they lose something, which is they're incredibly alone and often very anxious or depressed and unfulfilled. So it's not like avoidant people are um, off the hook on this one. Another condition that I want to go into while we're talking about conditions is alexithymia. This is a difficulty with um, being able to understand your own feelings. And um, so it's, um, it's basically alexithymia is difficulty describing your feelings in a nutshell. And what they have found through research is that when you have attachment difficulties, you have more likelihood of having this where you have it, particularly if you're avoidant, you have a harder time describing your your feelings to other people. And this can cause lots of other problems because it, if you don't know your feelings, you don't know your attachment needs, right? When I talked about how emotions are the basis for a, attachment behavior, and when you don't notice your emotions, then you don't know what your attachment issues are. So like you go to a party and you socialize with a bunch of people and the next day you wake up and you feel ashamed and you, you feel bad and you're in a bad mood, but you don't really know why. And if someone asked you, you know, are you in a bad mood? You'd be like, no, I feel fine. But you actually are in a bad mood, but you, you're just unaware of it. You just feel like generally upset and you don't really have the ability to reflect on that. Well, if you could reflect on that and you were like, oh, I, I think, yeah, I'm in a, I am in a bad mood. Why am I in a, in a bad? Well, I think, I think I'm, I think I'm ashamed of some things I said last night, or I'm, I'm worried that I said something stupid last night. Okay, well, how does that have to do with attachment? Well, I think I'm worried about being rejected by this group of people, which would, uh, which I guess cognitively, I don't really care because I have other friends. But uh, on an evolutionary basis, the notion of being rejected by a tribe of, of people triggers a deep fear in me. And I, so that's why I'm probably in a bad mood today because I'm just less secure in my relationships with those people. How, what do I want to do about that? Do I want to reach out to them and ask them if I did anything stupid last night? Or do I want to bond with one or two of them? Or do I want to bond with other people in my life so that I don't really need those people to bond with right now? I've talked about addiction and substance abuse already, but uh, I just want to highlight one study. Uh, it's uh, Thornburg et al. and other studies have found that addiction and substance abuse are associated with insecure attachment, which makes total sense. One study, uh, Karimi et al. 2018, found that insecure attachment increases the risk of addiction by about 40%. That's a, that's a pretty big deal. 
So if if you have insecure attachment, you're um, you know you you have a much higher risk of developing a substance abuse problem. Also, depression is associated with insecure attachment uh, for obvious reasons. I won't go into the details on that. Let's talk about social anxiety. Social anxiety is an intense fear of embarrassment or or humiliation in social or performance situations. Um, I think all of us can relate to social anxiety, but when we actually apply the label, it's when it's really quite severe and it's causing a lot of problems in their life. There is a pretty high rate of anxiety in general, and social anxiety is a part of that. There's a 13% lifetime prevalence rate of social anxiety disorder found by Kessler et al., uh, 1994. 13%. And this is consistent with other research that has found that social anxiety is, is has pretty high rates for a lifetime, and, and, and probably, I'm guessing, 5%, 3 to 5% of people at any given time have social anxiety disorder. Or uh, because anxiety disorders are really quite common. Um, it's one of the, I think it is the most common condition for people to have, including kids, by the way. Um, so how is attachment theory related to social anxiety? So here's the theory that people have put forth. We evolved to seek acceptance from other people, right? Because um, when we're accepted by our tribe, we're more likely to be protected by our tribe, you know, herd protection. We're more likely to learn things from our tribe. We're, we're more likely to find a mate in our tribe. We're more likely to... Um, you know, be fed, you know, just so many reasons why we and other pack animals evolved an instinct, a inherited motivation, as Bulby put it, to make sure that we uh, stay attached to our tribe and all and facilitated by an intense fear of being rejected and disapproved of. So we evolved that and all of us have it. A lot of people like to think of, you know, I don't care what people think. It's like, uh, yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, you could, you, you would like to think that you don't care about what other people think, but you intensely care about what other people think. It'd be like saying, I don't need water or I don't need food. It's like, yeah, you do. Um, you could, you can convince yourself that you don't need water, but your body needs water. Your body needs social acceptance. It's, it's, it's not a weakness. It's being human. And, uh, so when we feel the threat of abandonment, we evolved a emotion to motivate us, which is fear, which is, we could say, generally speaking, is social anxiety. And this is really helpful, uh, even in our modern lives. For example, let's say you're at a party last night and you want to tell a joke, but you're afraid that the joke might be racist. You, you, and you, you're, you know, you're about to tell the joke. But then all of a sudden, you feel this fear response in you. It's visceral in your body. You're like, oh, you know, I feel, I know, that, oh, I'm afraid. And then your your mind says, okay, why am I afraid? And, the, okay, I'm afraid that I might be rejected by this group. Well, let me think about this joke for a second. I guess it is kind of racist. I'm not going to tell this joke. So this evolved sense of acceptance in a group is actually, you know, a very fairly functional. But sometimes when people are chronically rejected as chil- as children, often through criticism or uh, lack of attentive attunement, the child will grow up to be an adult and they will have a chronic sense of danger in social relationships, i.e. social anxiety. Essentially, their working model of others is one of danger. 
and they assume others will think of them as being stupid or as being rejectable. And so they walk around in the world with this constant sense that they're in danger and that they're going to screw things up. Their emotions are chronically fearful about social situations. And then, of course, if you're giving a speech in front of a crowd of people and because of your childhood mistreatment, you have intense fear while you're on stage, you're going to freak out. Your heart's going to race. You're going to become confused and you're going to screw up that speech. Well, guess what? That's going to be a negative experience and it's going to be fairly kind of traumatic and you're going to walk away from that experience even more socially anxious than when you started. And that's what happens to people is they tend to get worse and worse and worse over time because their social anxiety actually results in them experiencing more difficulty in social situations, whether that be on stage or just chatting with someone at work or whatever. And attachment is the key. So if you can be properly attached as a child, then you're much less likely to develop social anxiety disorder because you're much less likely to develop a working model of other people as being dangerous. And, um, and also you're just better at regulating your emotions naturally without, without much effort. So this attachment issue resulting in also social anxiety, I find to be very indicative of the incel people, the MGTOW people, the red pill dudes. Uh, These people email me every day. And when you get inside their minds, you get inside the mind of a socially anxious, insecure attachment person who went on the internet and became very close to a lot of propaganda that they absorbed and now they're spouting it. Uh, I think that's how I see them. That that, and it's sad. I wish that they were not mistreated when they were young, or that someone paid more attention to them when they were young. I know some of you patrons are actually like ex incel people or former MGTOW people, and so let me know if this applies to you. Insecure attachment is also associated with eating disorders, death anxiety, problems with anger. The last thing that I'll talk about in this section is psychopathy, psychopathic personality disorder. It's associated with insecure attachment, obviously, uh, particularly disorganized attachment. It's a hard thing to figure out as to what um, causes psychopathy because it's it's because to me when I conceptualize borderline or avoidant or narcissistic, I find a, a very I find it very easy to conceptualize the path to those personality disorders because, um, well, I don't know. It's just easy for me. But psychopathy, um, particularly this, uh, you know, lack of empathy for other people, it's a little harder for me because it's such a break from the typical human experience. Um, but if I was to hypothesize uh, about the path between attachment injury and psychopathy, I would say something along these lines. When we go through mistreatment of a particular flavor, we, again, have a lot of, we only have a a set of choices available to us. And one of those uh, choices, subconsciously choices, is to develop a um, cutoff from your own emotions, cut off from your own empathy. Because imagine if you were being mistreated or you're abandoned or alone or you're scared all the time. Well, 
an easy thing to do, which is apparently available to us humans, is to just basically completely cut yourself off from all emotion. Because when you cut yourself off from emotion, then you don't notice that you feel afraid. You don't notice that you feel alone. And you don't really care about other people, which helps because other people aren't treating you very well. So you can function much better. It's, you could consider it kind of a, a form of dissociation. And as I talk about it, I find this to be quite a compelling argument to me, <laughs> the argument that I'm making uh, to myself. I'm, I'm, very, I'm very convincing to myself today. And as you cut yourself off from those emotions, you'll... So one of the interesting things about psychopaths is that they're often fear, fearless. They often do things that are... That would be otherwise really hard for people to do, like crime, like climbing El Capitan without any ropes. I'm not saying that that kid was um, psychopathic, but I'm saying that psychopaths are known for having taking uh, for doing activities like crime or other kinds of things uh, that other people would really have a hard time doing. Well, why is that? Well, one. Uh, and why would that be associated with lack of empathy, criminal behavior, manipulative, manipulativeness, and this sort of thing? Well, so because you're cut off from your emotions and you're really, really cut off from your attachment needs, you, um, it's not like you don't have emotions and it's not like you don't have attachment needs. So all this kind of gets uh, wrapped up in your personality and you're trying to build relationships because everyone wants relationships. I've always contended that psychopaths, even people like Ted Bundy, uh, Charles Manson, these kinds of evil, Jeffrey Dahmer, they, in my conceptualization, were just as needy of relationships as other people, if not more so. But because of their working models, they had really no way of trusting other people or even knowing themselves well enough to be able to navigate that. And things got real wonky for them. And they were either so angry at the world because of how how bad the world made them feel that they ended up uh, killing other people and, and doing horrible things to them. Or they were so desperate for attachment that they felt the only way they could get it is through coercion and violence and murder. And so that's my conceptualization of attachment, disruption, and psychopathy. Okay, so let's switch gears here and talk about measurement of attachment style. So I've been talking about a lot of different ways to measure attachment style, but I thought I'd just list them out. Obviously, the strain situation, the famous uh, uh, procedure that Mary Ainsworth, Mary Ainsworth et al. developed in 1978 uh, and beyond. Uh, the Cassidy and Marvin system developed in 1992. This is with older children be between two and a half and four and a half years old. So the strain situation is for children, if I remember right, between like nine months and, and 24 months, something like that. And the Cassidy and Marvin system are for older children, so preschool age kids. You also have the child attachment interview developed by Amanidi et al. in 1990. This is, this is for children between six and 14 years old. So there are different ways to measure attachment for children depending on how old they are. You have the attachment Q sort. All of these measures are are what I would call non-self-report measures. So these are measures where a uh, assessor is actually observing the uh, person who's being assessed, and you're not relying on the person to self-report 
which I'll get into the self-report measures. Um, attachment QSort, current relationship interview developed by Crowell and Owens in 1996. This is um, often for spousal attachment. But the main one that we use for adults is the adult attachment interview, which I've talked about before. This is the main measure for adults. It's the most well-validated method of assessing adult attachment style. It's highly predictive of a lot of different things, including how this person will parent their own children. And uh, it's also highly predictive of the attachment style of, of the infant. So when you administer the adult attachment interview to a parent, you have uh, a pretty good likelihood of being able to predict the attachment style of that child and the attachment child of that child as they grow up. Uh, developed by George et al. 1996, it's a one-hour interview on attachment history, and uh, it's a seemingly effective measure. There are 20 questions that the interview involves. So if you think 20 questions over an hour, you have about a few minutes for each question. And I thought I would just read some of the questions so you get an idea of the kind of questions that the assessor will ask. The sixth question is, when you were upset as a child, what would you do? So you just ask the person, when you were upset as a child, what would you do? This is a pretty open-ended question, right? Someone would say, oh, uh, well... I don't know. I guess when I was upset, I would probably play with my Legos or I would go to my sister or whatever, you know, there, there, and then the interviewer would ask them to elaborate on that. The eighth question is, did you ever feel rejected as a young child? Did you ever feel rejected as a young child? Now, some people will be like, nope, never felt rejected. Other people will be like, oh my God, all the time. And boy, was it very bothersome. And other people will be like, oh, well, um, sure, yeah, when I was in school, there were times when I felt that um, I wasn't really getting along with other people. The, the ninth question, were your parents ever threatening with you in any way, maybe for discipline, even if it was just jokingly? So this is a good question to get at, uh, attachment style. Number 10. In general, how do you think your overall experiences with your parents have affected your adult personality? So this is a bit of a trick, trick, tricky one because it's not like the uh, exact answers are what the assessor is paying attention to. Often what the assessor is paying attention to is the way in which we answer these questions. So if you said um, – if in the interview, for example, you're like, so what was your childhood like? And the person was like, oh, my God, it was pretty bad. I mean, my dad was an alcoholic. My mom was not really around. My dad was physically abusive. It's not like that content indicates attachment style of the adult. It it gives a little bit of evidence, but really what the assessors are looking for are the the way in which we talk about the past. So let me explain when I get into the, the four different classifications. So the first classification is for secure, securely attached people, and this is what they call an autonomous state of mind. These people describe their experiences in a balanced and coherent way. A balanced and coherent way. So even if they're talking about quite difficult childhood experiences, it'll come across as quote-unquote balanced and coherent. They engage in open discussion about their childhood caregiving experiences, you know, they end up talking about their parents fairly openly, and they demonstrate a valuing of attachment relationships. 
So when they're asked about how they attach to other people, they tend to value those attachments. So it's coherent. They're collaborative with the interviewer. You know, there, there's no resistance to the interview process. And they have consistent descriptions of others. So even if they went through a lot of difficulty, they have a consistent description of that person. And I've seen this to be true. When I, when I see people at the higher ends of insecure attachment, when they talk about their childhoods, they tend to be confusing. Like they'll talk about their mother and you'll have a hard time really grasping what that person was like and what they uh, were like in relation to that person. So again, the interviewer is not looking for the content. They're looking at the the process of discussing the past with the interview. Number two is a preoccupied state of mind. So this is for preoccupied people. Uh, these people during the interview will often become overwhelmed with anger when they're talking about their attachment figures and or they will be rambling. So the uh, interview will regardless of what they're talking about, it will not be very coherent. And they'll talk excessively excessively about current and past attachments as if they are currently emotionally involved with those people. So even though they're 45 years old and their grandma passed away when they were, you know, 25, and they're talking about their grandma attachment when they were five years old, they'll talk about it in an emotional way as if it's happening right then and there. Whereas people who are securely attached will tend to talk about the past um, with maybe some emotion, but it, it it's not like it's present right happening right here. Again, preoccupied people also tend to talk a lot. They tend to ramble. They sometimes are very jumbled in their talking, sometimes jumbled grammar, and they might have vague statements about other people. So it, again, it doesn't matter what the content is. It, it often can involve difficulty. But as we've been talking about, you can, avo- you can develop preoccupied or avoidant attachment style even if your childhood was on the surface good, meaning that your parents were there, there was no addiction, no one abandoned you, no one beat you, no one abused you. Um, but the quality of the attunement is really the key. And so so it doesn't really matter what – the other thing is is you can experience abuse as a child but get enough attunement that you actually develop secure attachment style, although abuse can interfere with attunement, obviously, and interfere with your ability to receive attunement from other people. Um, just being abused doesn't necessarily mean you, you have insecure attachment. So the key to the interview here, which is so brilliant, is looking for patterns in the way people talk about the past. And so uh, preoccupied people tend to – uh, talk a lot. They tend to uh, be kind of expansive and um, jumbled and in- inconsistent in the same way that their parents were with them. And I find this to be true when I'm working with my students because, you know, in my family of origin class, when I ask the students to talk about their past, there's varying levels of secure attachment within the students that I teach. And when they write their papers, people who have a um, much more difficult childhood and are much more insecurely attached, when they write about their past, their grammar gets more jumbled, their ability to write in a coherent way becomes more difficult, which of course makes sense. And it's tough for me because I have to um, you know, monitor that. I can't 
they have to write a good enough paper. They have to write a graduate level paper. And, um, you know, I feel bad for them because it, I, I, I suspect the reason why they're really struggling with the papers is because of this, um, attachment issue. But, um, you know, it's just the way things are, I guess. I mean, I, I definitely work with the students a lot, one on one to try to help them to ease their mind and get them into the, um, writing, uh, zone, so to speak. The third classification is for uh, avoidant people. These are what they call a dismissing state of mind. And these people do not provide convincing information. So they might idealize their childhood experiences. So avoidant people, when they talk about the past, sometimes they'll be like, oh, my parents were the best and my family was the best and I was the best and everything was the best. Or they do not provide much information. So they will say, I don't really remember much about that. You know, like when you ask them, um, did you ever feel rejected as a young child? They'll be like, they'll either be like, oh, no, no, no. I never felt rejected. My, my childhood was great. Or they'll say, um, you know, I don't really remember. And you're like, well, can you think of any time when you were rejected as a child? And they'll be like, mm, no. So this is because the avoided person learned to shut off their memory systems because it, it helped them to cope with the situation. Plus, they didn't really have enough people attuned to them, so they, they didn't really learn their emotions. So the idea of rejection sort of requires you originally as a child to take note of the fact that you feel rejected and then encode the memory as such. So uh, avoidant people, when they're interviewed, talk about this. Uh, it also can be incoherent. The narrative can be inconsistent, similar to preoccupied people. And they tend to answer in a brief way. So they will um, have very brief answers in on average. The fourth classification is for dis disorganized people, and they call these people unresolved state of mind. And they become disoriented during the interview or confused when discussing experiences during their childhood. They often are recalling loss and abuse as in the past. And so as they discuss those things, they, you're, as you're listening to them, you're, you're watching someone become disoriented and confused. They might even dissociate, right? So this state, unresolved state of mind, is harder to detect because uh, disorganized attachment is kind of odd when it presents. Um, so, but it, it's also incoherent. It's also inconsistent. And the interviewee might lapse into long silences. So, um, so that's that. When you apply this to a sample of adults, they find that about 60% of people are classified as secure. About 23 are classified as avoidant and about 19% are classified as preoccupied. When they look to also capture disorganized people, one study by uh, Backerman, Cranenberg, uh, et al. in 2009 found that 18% of non-clinical adults are also classified as unresolved, which I find to be quite high. And I suspect that there was something odd about the way they did that. So... Um, uh, this is similar to other rates. It always seems like about 60 to 70% of people can be classified as secure. About 15 to 20% each are classified as preoccupied and avoidant. 
and some smaller percentage, 5%-ish, can be classified as disorganized. So those are all measures at, that you're interviewing someone, you're observing someone in the lab, like the strain situation. Now, what about self-report measures? So self-report measures are measures that you administer. They're often uh, very brief, and you, you just give it to the person. It's a survey kind of thing and Likert scales kind of things. And the person fills it out, and then you take it from them, and then you uh, score it. Now, self-report measures have problems because if you are disorganized, you might become confused as you're taking the, the measure, and it might screw up the results. So, uh, and, and a lot of other problems. They might lie. They might try to be saying something. You know, They might be trying to promote something about themselves, uh, and so they might alter the test based on that. So self-report measures are obviously not as valid. They're not as reliable. They're not preferred. But the benefit to self-report measures is they're ex a lot less expensive to administer and a lot easier to administer. You know, the adult attachment interview has to be conducted by someone who knows how to do it. And I, I've never been trained on it. I'm From the looks of it, it looks like it would take a long time to figure out how to do that because you'd have to learn how to ask the questions just right You'd have to learn how to um, probe questions in a certain way to elicit certain responses. So, and then the coding of it, would, I'm sure, would be pretty difficult because it's it sounds like it's uh, somewhat subjective. So, but when you administer a self-report measure, it requires very little training at all, if at all. In fact, you can actually go online right now and take self-report measures that are available to everybody. You can actually just just Google, um, you know how to measure my attachment style. And some of them are, are sort of tricksy links to make you pay for something. But there are a, a number of free online attachment style measures, which I actually encourage you to do. Um, I find them to be pretty accurate, it, it, as long as you're answering the questions truthfully, right? So self-report measures that you can administer that are supported by science. Attachment history questionnaire, Inventory of parent and peer attachment, reciprocal and avoidant attachment questionnaire, the attachment style questionnaire, and many others. The one I really want to get into here is one that I really like. It's called the Brief Accessibility Responsiveness and Engagement, or the BEAR. It's a 12-item instrument, so that makes it pretty easy to take, just 12 items. And it assesses attachment behaviors in couples. So a lot of times when I'm working with people, Attachment is uh, very much a part of my clients' lives, and it's 95% of the time, it is, it, it's most relevance is in their marriage um, because they're having conflict or they're feeling distance or this kind of thing. And so the bear helps to um, measure that. So it measures uh, accessibility to attachment. It measures responsiveness to attachment, and it measures engagement to attachment. So let's look at the questions on the bear. So all these questions, you uh, circle a number between one and five, with one being never true and five being always true. So the first two questions have to do with accessibility. I am rarely available to my partner. I am rarely available to my partner. Is that never true, sometimes true, always true? It is hard for my partner to get my attention. Okay, 
So that's interesting, right? It, it measures avoidant attachment, obviously, right? The next category of questions, the two questions, has to do with responsiveness. I listen when my partner shares her or his deepest feelings. I listen when my partner shares their feelings with me. I am confident I I am confident I reach out to my partner. I am confident I reach out to my partner. What in the world? Something happened there to that question. <laughs> um, I think that question is a typo, even though I'm looking at the exact um, the exact subscale. Okay, anyway, uh, let's move on. <laughs> Engagement. It is hard for me to confide in my partner, and I struggle to feel close and engaged in our relationship. So this measures attachment and security in general. The next number of questions has to do with your partner, your your, ba- your the relationship style that you're in, and also the attachment style of your partner, and also your working model of other people. My partner is rarely available to me. It is hard for me to get my partner's attention. My partner listens when I share my deepest feelings. I am confident my partner reaches out to me. Oh, maybe that's what that other question was. I am confident I reach out to my partner. Oh, what a weird way to, to ask that question. It's not a typo. So what, what they're trying to say is, uh, when I reach out to my partner, I'm confident that, uh, that I will reach out to them. I am confident I reach out to my partner, meaning I am confident that I, when I need to, I will reach out to my partner. <laughs> anyway. Uh, last two questions has to do with your partner's engagement. It is hard for my partner to confide in me and my partner struggles to feel close and engaged in our relationship. So it's pretty interesting. And depending on your, your, the score, you are looking at, uh, mild distress in the relationship, moderate distress or severe distress. And, um, I don't know, it's a quick and dirty thing. I don't think it's an amazing measure, but it's fast. And I think it helps to people to understand uh, their attachment. Because for some people, when they take this measure, they're like, huh, it's hard for me to confide in my partner. Yeah, I guess it is. I guess I guess I don't really confide in my partner very much. I kind of keep things to myself. And it might be kind of an awareness thing for the person the first time. It, it might be like, and it might be something that you and your clients for the very first time are discussing. You might not have ever really discussed it so pointedly. Do you confide in your partner? Do you tell your partner about your deepest feelings? That kind of thing. How do you feel about your partner? Would they respond well to you if if you did so? That kind of thing. Okay. So there's a lot more I can go into in terms of how to measure adult attachment and child attachment, but I hope you get the picture. So let's talk a little bit about orchid children and dandelion children. I've done an episode on this, and so if you want to hear the whole episode, go to the website and find it. I'm guessing it's probably under the parenting tab. Not sure. But the idea goes is that there are uh, there's a, a disposition that children are potentially born with in which there's a spectrum of how sensitive they are to the world, essentially. And for some people, they're very sensitive to the world, and um, they call these people orchid children. Um and for there are other sorts of people who are just less sensitive to the world, and they call those people dandelion children. The idea goes is that orchids are very sensitive to their environment, 
and um, have a hard time growing in a lot of environments. But when they are given the, the right set of circumstances, they grow into this beautiful orchid flower. Whereas dandelions uh, can grow anywhere, and there's not as much of a variance between the, you know, in bad environments, dandelions still grow fairly well. But in good environments, they also grow, but they grow uh, maybe a little bit more gloriously. And what some researchers have found is that um, orchid children, and you know, this all sounds really silly. It's when you hear it at first, when you just hear the title orchid children and dandelion children, you think of, or I do anyway, you think of things like auras and chakras. And, you know, it's like this person has an orchid aura and it sounds new age and silly. But, um, and I kind of wish they would have picked different language for that reason. I mean, why not just call some kids highly sensitive and some kids not, not as sensitive? I don't know. But the research has found, and they've done empirical research uh, to measure children's responsiveness to pain and responsiveness to stimuli, and then they look at how they thrive and under different circumstances. And what they have found is that when you have a highly sensitive child, an orchid child, and they are raised in a secure environment, they tend to do really well. They tend to be smarter. They tend to be more creative. They tend to be more ambitious, they, um, all those kinds of things. But when you take a highly sensitive child and you raise them in a not-so-good environment or even an average environment, and they tend not to do very well at all, in fact, they tend to do really, really badly. So orchid children are more variable depending on um, the environment that they grow up in, whereas dandelion kids, uh, when they're raised in good environments, they do well but not as well as orchid children. And with dandelion kids, when they're raised badly, they do bad, but not as badly as orchid children. So that's that's how the research goes, and it makes sense to me. So the big question here is, how does attachment figure into this? Well, obviously, the attachment between the child and the parent is a part of that environment in which the children will thrive or not thrive. The other thing is, is that, that I... Um, couldn't find any research on, but I think should be researched, is because the research on orchid and dandelion children, it assumes that this is probably a biological disposition that the child is born with or very quickly develops with, through epigenetics early in life. But to me, it sounds like what they're talking about are uh, kids who are secure, preoccupied, and avoidant. When you're avoidant, like we've been talking about, you, you shut yourself off from the world and you also shut yourself off from your emotions. So you are less affected by things. You're more internal. And so when the world is great, you know, it's fine, but you didn't really need the world to be great because you're okay on your own. And when the world sucks, you know, it sucks and you're affected by that, but you're not as affected by it because you're just not really connected to the world. And you developed avoidant attachment in response to the attachment environment when you were very young. Whereas when you're preoccupied, you are very susceptible to the outside world because that's your orientation to cope with the fact that you weren't getting consistent attunement. And therefore, when the world is going really well, then you're doing really well. And the world's doing really badly, you're doing really badly. So sometimes I think that might be part of the reason um, why we observe these different attached or these different sensitivity um, uh, uh, amounts in children. <laughs> So anyway, um, another thing that uh, I wanted to actually go into but didn't have time to really develop 
is just a, a full discussion of attachment theory and public policy and public health. I've already talked a little bit about it. Namely, we should be uh, working, and we do to some extent, but not nearly as much as we should be. We should have programs that touch every family and help them to uh, you know, provide secure attachment for their children for all the reasons that I've been talking about, less psychopathology, lower crime rates, lower addiction, um, you know, better in school, uh, less need for medication, less need for therapy, um, higher, uh, lower dropout rates, live longer, less, less, less health care needs, you know, less physical problems, um, less personality disorders, just everything, a better parenting when those kids grow up. So uh, public policy, I mean, how, can you imagine like a governor stepping forward and saying, we need to be helping our children develop secure attachment, and I am going to champion a bill or a, a whatever you know legislation that's going to allocate funds that's going to start you know the attachment act, and this is a program that is going to help all families regardless of income because it doesn't you know being poor does affect parents' ability to parent for sure. But you you can be super rich and still parent your children very badly. And you know, being rich doesn't mean you're automatically attuned to your children. So there's a uh, so it would it would affect everybody, and it would be something that would be in people's homes. It wouldn't you know today we have programs like this, but they're they're available upon request, and you kind of have to know to find them. You would have to go to a local agency and and say, I want help with parenting my kids. Do you have an attachment-oriented training program or something? And so there are things like that, but it's pretty – it's not very advertised. It's kind of inconvenient. I mean I guess when I think about it in today's world, the best thing would be would just be YouTube videos uh, there that are, um, I don't know, maybe even required for parents to watch. Like all kids need to go to school, right? That's just part of the thing. And so as a part of that – you require parents watch the YouTube video, but the damage is already done by the time they enter kindergarten. So I guess, um, I mean, I guess in my somewhat Orwellian world, all parents before they give birth and in the first couple of years of their, their, their first child's life, they are required to watch a number of YouTube videos. <laughs> I don't know how you would measure that or monitor that or whatever. I, I don't know, um, you know, because maybe that would do it. Imagine if, imagine if every parent in in your society, well, prior to giving birth, and then you know, for the first two two years, maybe even just the first year of life, that they are taught very specific principles of attunement to children. Think about. Even even just like one YouTube video that was like ten minutes long. Imagine it, what that would do for people. But also imagine if we had a culture in which there were access and and knowledge to to seek access to such things um, for people at every stage of parenting. Um, how wonderful that would be! Now it's complex because just watching a video for many people, they're going to be like, okay, I get the picture, um, and that doesn't really affect their parenting. So it wouldn't be, you know, extremely sweeping in terms of its effects in my estimation. Um, 
but just some system, you know, like YouTube videos matched up with access to parenting therapists who are on the phone or can do home visits to make it convenient for, I mean, imagine that. Imagine if there were free in-home family therapists, you could have five sessions for free from a trained attachment-oriented parenting therapist. And I'm saying therapist because I don't, I want to avoid the word coach because I feel like clinicians should be doing this. Um, I guess non-clinicians could do it too. But anyway, some sort of person who goes to the home and is an expert on how helping parents with their parenting. And that person knows how to pump up the self-esteem of the parents, how to give feedback. Uh, imagine if we had that for every parent and, and maybe even required it for everybody. <laughs> um, and if it's required, then, you know, you have to make it really nice for people. You know, we require a lot of things in our society. Before you can drive a car, you got to get a driver's license, right? And in order to get a driver's license, you have to take driver's ed. You forced people, you force people before they can drive a car to take a class on how to drive and they need to pass a test and uh, and everyone understands this benefits society because if you just hand out driver's licenses to people, uh, you're going to cause car accidents. Well, uh, and I know it, it it sounds like some court sort of um, I don't know communist act to require parents to get a license to have kids. It sounds awful, um, but I think if you made it uh, easy enough to pass and also enjoyable enough for people to do, I think that. People would want to do to do it. They, they, you know, a lot of uh, parents with their first kid in particular, they're terrified of bringing their child home. I mean, you hear a lot of parents they'll they'll say like, the hospital will just discharge the parents with their infant, and these parents, this is their first child. They're often saying, so you're just going to let me bring this child home with me? Like you're not gonna you're not gonna check in on me to make sure that I'm not fucking this up? Like you're just gonna hand this this creature over to me and and I just go home and you have no idea what I'm going to do. A lot of parents will say that. They'll just be like, I was surprised. You know, I, I, I know that that's the procedure, but it just felt weird that they just trusted me. I mean, how do they know I'm going to do a good job? So I think a lot of parents would actually appreciate something like this. Now, not everyone would need it. So you'd probably have, I don't know, 25% of people who are like, yeah, I'm a therapist. I know attunement. I don't need this. And maybe you could take some kind of test to test out of it or something or maybe there's like an advanced course or something you could take if you, if you if you uh qualify for such a thing i don't know i just i just think it would be great if we could somehow create such a thing it'll never happen of course i'm quite sure of that but wouldn't it be nice also the other thing that i wanted to go into but really didn't have time to research and there's not a lot of literature on is or any i couldn't find any literature on it is not that there not that it doesn't exist but i couldn't find it is that how we as individuals feel when we are interfacing with our relationship with society. So when when I think about my relationship with my society, how safe do I feel? How attuned to me does my society feel to me? That's a really weird question, right? But I find that when you find extreme examples, it makes it more clear. Like, if you are a woman in Saudi Arabia and you your society is such that you have very little rights, that you can um, be beaten by your husband or your father, you can even be killed in some instances, you can't uh, travel freely, you have to dress a certain way, 
your society and the laws thereof are uh, taken in by you in a certain way. And if you don't like the way that you're being treated, then you're going to feel like your society is not attuned to your feelings. Your society isn't listening to you. Your, your society doesn't care about you. Your society is abusing you. And this relationship with society can have a lot of effects for the individual, right? You can feel insecurely attached in general uh, to society and to other people. When your society treats you this way, you internalize this, this and it creates your working model for society. You know, how do you feel about society? Um, and that can be retained and it can cause a lot of problems in the, you know, moving into the future. Right. And, um, so like w one way of looking at when Trump got elected is for a lot of people on the left and particularly for a lot of women, they felt like their relationship with society had become, uh, problematic. And so uh, there was a lot of different emotional responses to that. And you could kind of even look at the responses as attachment behavior. When, for example, when a parent is, um, you know, say you're a father and, you know, you take a father who uh, comes at the kids and is, or maybe a better analogy would be when you're, say your father dies and your mother remarries somebody. And this new father comes into the home, and he has a completely different way of parenting, and he doesn't seem like he really cares about you. You, you have a number of different uh, responses to that. One response is to just avoid the whole thing and to disappear. The other response is to lean in and try to change things, either by asserting yourself with him or getting angry at him or telling your mom to get rid of him or something. Well, we and this is all based on attachment. It's all based on the child's need to feel attached to their caregivers. It has to do with the loss of their of their father. It has to do with their trust in their mother. And when we see Obama leaving office, and we have a new dad, Donald Trump, who enters our life, depending on how you feel about him, will determine your attachment behavior to that. For some people, they wanted to disappear and move away to Canada. For some people, they wanted to lean in and march on Washington and you know do advocacy. So I think that uh, there are some very compelling analogies or even just straight-up situations in which attachment is playing itself out between individuals and society. And I think that when we think about it that way, I think it's helpful. Like – if I was an advisor to Donald Trump, I would say – I would explain what it is to explain and I would say, so if you want people to stop being so angry at you and if you want to get things done in this society, you have to start making people feel more safe. You are the new stepdad. You have to go into the room of your children and you have to say, I'm here for you. What would you like to tell me? And I'm willing to listen. And I see that you're really scared. I see that you're really upset that I've entered the house, and I get that. And um, you also have to get mom involved, which I guess in this analogy in the United States would be, I don't know, who would, who would the mom be? Uh, the Congress, I guess. <laughs> um, so uh, w 
and I've often thought about that. I've you know when when I saw Donald Trump and all the problems, you know, because when he was elected, a lot of people were like, "Well, how do we get rid of him?" And I I know enough about politics and enough about the law to know that it's extremely difficult to get rid of a president. And unless something really strange happens, you just have to assume like this person is going to be with us for at least four years. And I mean, even with Trump's legal problems now, which are really quite extensive, extensive from what I understand from experts, um, there's still a pretty good chance we're not going to be able to get rid of him. Anyway, depending on how you feel, I know we have some Republicans and some Trump supporters um, out there. So for some of you, you might be like, well, I hope we don't get rid of him because he's the best. I don't know. Um, but I have often thought that, uh, I often thought back then that it's like, well, if I was an advisor to Trump, I'd be like, okay, so we get that you want the wall. We get that you're a Republican now, even though you used to be a Democrat 10, 15 years ago. Um, that's great. You want to, you want to be a Republican president. You want to have a good legacy. You want to get things done. The only way you're going to be able to do that is if you get people on the left to not be so afraid of you. And some of the things that you're doing isn't helping. So here's a list of things you could do to make Democrats less afraid. It doesn't mean you have to give in to their uh, requests of you. Uh, it just means you have to make them feel less afraid. Like maybe come out and say, okay, I'm president now. I won the election. Let me address Democrats and liberals. I was accused during the election of promoting sexual violence towards women. And I just want to reiterate that I apologize for what I said on that bus. I apologize for things that have been um, that I've done in the past. Uh, I was younger then. I didn't really know. And you're right. I shouldn't have done those things. I'm ashamed of them. And uh, I do not want to be a model I don't want that to be a model for young men in America to make them feel like they can just grab people when they want or even if they, quote unquote, have the position in life to do so. Um, I really just don't want to do that. And um, so people on the left just know that um, I heard you and you're right. I, it was it was bad. Um, I didn't want to say anything during the election because I wanted to get elected. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, but now that I'm elected, I, I have the freedom to, to really just level with everyone and say, I get it. Um, so I hope that we can move on from that. And, you know, let's continue the conversation around that so we can continue to change our society and move away from uh, the kinds of behaviors that all of us can agree are bad. You know, no one should grab people. No one should assault people. No one should make other people feel uncomfortable. That's all bad. We all know that. Republicans and Democrats, we can all get on the same page of that. Can you imagine if Donald Trump said such a thing? <laughs> As I say it out loud, I'm just like, why do these people not exist? Uh, you know, Because uh, even people like Kevin Spacey and these sorts of people, why don't they say this sort of thing? It, it just boggles the mind why they can't have a heart and see things for what they are. It's just bizarre to me. Um. So I actually have a uh, – and this, this goes – so it's not just presidents. It's also uh, bosses at work. Like if you work for an organization and you have a new boss or a boss that is creating lots of problems, it's often – it often can be conceptualized through the attachment lens. When you have – at my university, we have what we call upper administration. It's like our you know, slang term for all the 
people who are higher up at the university. And I actually don't prefer the term higher up or upper administration. I consider it because in a lot of ways um, we're kind of a flat hierarchical organization. Um, but anyway, they're the people who are, um, you know, the presidents and the provosts and the vice provosts and whatever. The chancellors, I forget what it's so weird in universities. They, they have, we at our university over the past, you know, 25 years that I've been a part of it has changed over time. Sometimes we have a provost, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have a chancellor, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have a president, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have vice provosts, and sometimes we have deans of academic affairs, and sometimes we don't. Sometimes we have dean of faculty, and sometimes we don't. It's just, um, a very weird situation to witness. It's like, can't you just land on an organizational chart and stick with it? <laughs> um, and what's up with the term chancellor? Why don't we just, you know, a lot of people don't, especially provost, hardly anyone understands what that, just call him a president. People understand what a president is or director. I don't know. Anyway, executive director. Um, at my university, I have observed various different cultures in the upper administration, and it has a profound effect on everyone else. And when people feel insecurely attached to their upper administration, they're much more likely to speak out. They're much more likely to unionize. So, for example, when we had one of our worst president provost people, we, we unionized as faculty for the first time and staff, faculty and staff. Anyway, we – um, and this was at, at during a time when there was really not a lot of talk about unionizing at our university. But this this the upper admin was so bad, and was was not attuned to us at all, and was basically like stonewalling us and treating us like crap. Uh, we took revenge <laughs> and action and unionized, which has actually been pretty great for us. Because like just this little tangent, the university was trying to cut costs, the upper admin, and they, as they always are. And one of the ways that they were trying to do that was by making professors teach more and more classes, right? That it's like, um, and while you're getting paid the same. So we went from um, teaching like a certain load of classes to uh, like it increased over the span of like 10 years, it increased like a hundred percent or something like uh, 10, 15 years of upper admin uh, abusing the faculty eventually led to the faculty teaching twice as much while getting paid the same amount. And there were machinations from the upper admin or rumors that they were going to increase it like another 100%. And we heard about other universities, similar universities that had similar policies where the, where the professors were required to teach just ungodly amount of classes. And... Um, which basically meant you'd be working like 60 hours a week or something. You'd be really stressed out. You would have no time for extra academic activities. Because when you're a professor, you're not just a teacher. That's what people often um, think. You know, when, that, when I say I'm a professor at a university, they're like, oh, you know, you, you teach. And I'm like, yeah, you know, some, some quarters I only teach like three hours a week. The other, you know, hours I'm in meetings, I'm talking to students. Uh, especially when I was chair of the program, I was I had to run the program. I was basically a professor slash administrator, right? Um, there's so many. We're also supposed to be doing research and writing and other kinds of things. And so 
Um, so uh, we unionized, and what the union did is it put an end to that increasing of of uh, teaching load and actually reduced it, which was pretty cool. So um, unions are great. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So let's look briefly at social media again. Um, there's been uh, some surprising findings uh, regarding social media, Facebook, Twitter, this kind of thing, and attachment. For example, one study by Gosh et al. 2015 found that um, Facebook users were more likely to be securely attached, which I think would be surprising to a lot of people because, again, I've talked about this before, but people have this really negative view of Facebook and Twitter when they talk about it out loud, even though they, they use it so much. <laughs> it's like we have this love-hate relationship with Facebook, which I find to be weird. It's like just accept the fact that Facebook is a thing and, you know, lots of people use it and for various different reasons. And and so I think most people, if you ask them like, okay, people who use Facebook, are they securely attached people or are they insecure? And what they would say, oh, they got to be insecure because everyone's so insecure on Facebook. And if you're securely attached, then surely you don't need Facebook. And it's like, what? Like, it's just such a strange thing that I, I mean, I haven't heard people say that, but I could absolutely imagine people saying that. Um, Facebook users are more likely to be secure attached, securely attached. Well, why is that? Well, hard to know exactly. But the idea goes is that when you have secure attachment, you're generally able to socialize better. You're more competent socially. You're less socially anxious. You're better able to attune and mentalize. Remember in mentalization, when you're reading things on Facebook, you have a you're, you have more skills basically at at knowing the mind of other people on Facebook, and therefore your interactions tend to be more accurate and more attuned. Um, also, securely attached people are uh, they report greater companionship, int intimacy, and emotional closeness. And Facebook is a way to gain companionship, intimacy, and emotional closeness to other people. Now, obviously, if you use Facebook as your only way of gaining companionship, then that can lend itself to some bad things. But for securely attached people, in my experience, they will have very good relationships with, with their spouses and family members and kids and parents and siblings and you know coworkers. And they also use Facebook in this very positive way to connect with other people and to attune to other people's feelings and to share things with other people, keep people informed, to get informed about other people. And so that makes sense to me. Now, other research has found other kinds of things. So I shouldn't say that um, you should think about Facebook users as always securely attached. The other thing is, is that we're only talking about a slight, uh, you know, difference in the bell curve, meaning that you, if you use Facebook, you could be extremely insecurely attached, right? And there are lots of securely attached people who don't use Facebook at all. Um, the other theory or the uh, – to extend this theory is if you're insecurely attached, you have a hard time mentalizing. So you have a hard time really interpreting people's actions on Facebook. You also are going to use Facebook in kind of a weird way that might push people away. Also, you're much more sensitive to rejection, if you're preoccupied. So you'll find that people who are preoccupied will have a really difficult time with Facebook because, um, you know, they post something and one of their friends doesn't respond to it. 
and they consider that kind of a betrayal and they will get very angry and they'll stop using Facebook altogether. Or they're avoidant and they don't want to use Facebook at all because they don't feel like sharing anything with anybody. Um, this is why Facebook is not used by a lot of men. It's, it's used by a lot of women. Women share a lot on, on Facebook compared to men. And it's because women are socialized to be more preoccupied. Men are socialized to be more avo avoidant. So um, that's, that to me all makes sense. Um, as I said, Facebook is a very complicated thing and obviously it's not universally positive. So I've already talked about animals and pets and our attachment to them and how it can be really a great thing. But just to go into a little bit more of the research on this, um, there's actually a measure on how to measure your attachment to your pet, which it was it's called the Pet Attachment Survey, and it was developed in 1985. And there are other measures as well. Um, so we've been measuring attachment to pets for a long time. There is extensive evidence showing that having pets has a positive effect on both psychological health and physical health, not only in childhood but throughout our lives. Studies have confirmed that pets reduce anxiety, depression, loneliness. Um, adults who have dogs adjust better to spousal bereavement. You know, when when so they study uh, spouses, widows, and widowers, and what they find is that when you have a dog, you adjust better, which makes total sense, right? Um, and adults who have dogs also have better physical health. Isn't that interesting? Dogs have been found to reduce blood pressure, which makes total sense to me. There was a study that suggested that pets even promote survival for coronary artery illness. Um, so uh, there was a study by Friedman et al. 1980, and they looked at 93 patients who returned home following a heart attack. And 6% of those with pets had died compared to 44% who did not have a pet. So I just want to explain this here for a second. Now, it's just one study and who knows, but they, uh, they looked at 93 people who had a heart attack and went home. And then they, uh, then they you know, measured or kept track of them to see if they died uh, within a certain time span. And for those people who had a pet... 6% of the people died. Of those who didn't have a pet, almost half of them died. <laughs> so it's like having a pet seems to have a really you know, wonderful effects on your health. And it's not just your health, it's your emotions, right? So the main thing is your attachment, and that affects your emotions, which affects your health. Um, and there's a lot of other studies along these lines. Um, one study found that 30 minutes with your own dog raises oxytocin, which, of course, you know, makes you feel relaxed and attached and happy and that kind of thing. As someone who has had pets throughout my life, I can absolutely attest to this. Some of my darkest moments were, um, you know, mediated or mitigated by my pet being with me during that time physically with me, to spend time with, to cuddle with, to um, put my face in their fur and breathe in and out, <laughs> you know, just to, you know, smell their fur and to just bury yourself in their fur and to hang out with them. It's a wonderful thing. Now, to me, what I, when I see this is that it's not that we necessarily need pets. 
It's that what we need is attachment, right? So if you have a lot of attachments in your life and you, and you have a lot of physical warmth where you and your kids, you and your spouse, you and your parents, there's a lot of touching, there's a lot of cuddling, there's a lot of warmth, there's a lot of hugging, there's back rubs, there's rolling around together, then you probably don't need a pet. But in our society, particularly in our mainstream American society, we frown on that sort of thing. Uh, particularly past a certain age. With uh, boys who are five years old, it's very common because culturally we consider it okay to quote-unquote roughhouse with that child. But if you're a girl, you're less likely to get that sort of attention. But as you get to be 13 years old and beyond, there's not a lot of cultural protocols or um, acceptance of a 14-year-old boy rolling around on the ground with his mom and uh, roughhousing. Our society sexualizes everything in this really stupid way. And so all that is frowned upon and looked weird. And you might even be reported to CPS for, for all I know. And so um, there's just not a lot of that. And then adults grow up and feel like, uh, well, you know, I'm okay on my own. I don't need stuff. And, you know, I've talked to people who will tell me that they haven't hugged anyone in years, and I'm just so sad for them. Uh, we need probably, I don't know, 10-second 10, 10 hugs a day, I would suspect, to function well, to have our blood pressure right, to have our health right, to have our appetite right, to have our mood right, to um, have our heart rate right. <laughs> um, there's just so many different things that is we need. It's just a biological thing. We just can't get away from that. And because we have all this denial of that, we have, as a culture, we've decided that we're just going to adopt a lot of these animals. And, I've, and I can't remember the phrase. I, I talked about this in another podcast, but basically animals are uh, these creatures that we force to live with us who um, are forced to also be our attachment figures and our and our cuddle machines. Um, now they're often bred for such, you know, they, they have evolved basically in response to our breeding to enjoy and also really want to, to cuddle with you as well. So it's mutual. Um, but isn't it interesting that we all have these, um, sort of forced companions in our house? You know, my, my pets, uh, I would imagine would want to live with me, even if they had a choice. They don't have a choice because I don't let the cat outside and uh, the dog is always on a leash for the most part. <laughs> um, so uh, it's just kind of interesting to me. And I think it's great. And I think we should all have pets. I love pets. Uh, but I also think we should really think a little harder about the fact that we might – I guess – all of you out there, think about your – you should – as we're – you know, the hours and hours I've been talking, I hope you've been thinking of taking an inventory of all your attachment figures currently in your life and the quality thereof, how much warmth you're getting, how much cuddling you're getting, how much support you're getting. When you have a stressful uh, experience, how many people can you turn to? How many people check in with you when you're you know not doing well? When you're sick, do how many people take you to the doctor? When you need help picking something up, how many people are there to help you do that? How many people reach out to you and say, how are you doing? I'm just really curious, you know, how you're doing, uh, including pets, I suppose, uh, just thinking about the whole thing. And if you only have pets to provide that for you, 
pets can only give you so much. There's certainly a lot of things that pets can do, but they can't really listen to you, or at least um, they can't respond. They don't know what you're talking about. Uh, they can't be with you all the time. They can't text you. They can't really help you in terms of like carrying things and this kind of stuff. And so, uh, I you know, I just hope you're taking an inventory of that whole thing. And often what people will say to me when I talk with clients about this and, and sometimes students is they'll say, well, um, you know, it's really hard to meet people. And it, I'm, I'm single. I don't have kids. My family lives on the other side of the country. What am I supposed to do? And I'll say, well, you can't snap your fingers and instantly have a bunch of secure attachments. Uh, so I get that. But uh, that doesn't mean you don't do anything. What it means is you go on a campaign of of cultivating those relationships. So, you know, if if right now you have very few relationships along that are good and strong and supportive, then you commit yourself to building. It's sort of like if you are overweight, you can't just snap your fingers and lose fifty pounds. You have to go on a campaign. It's hard. You have to make sacrifices. You have to make a plan. You have to have discipline. And the same goes for cultivating relationships, in, in my opinion, especially if, if you don't have any to begin with and you just basically have to in, create them out of nothing. So you have to go on a campaign. You have to say, okay, I'm going to commit myself to this, and in five years I hope to have three people I can really depend on, and it will be a mutually dependent relationship, whether that's friends or spouses or whatever. And so, right, what can I do? Well, right now I can sort of take an inventory of everyone I know to see if anyone's a good candidate and if anyone is a good candidate, then I can try to see if I can cultivate that relationship. Sometimes you just go to that person and say, my therapist tells me I need to have more supportive relationships, and I think that you might be a really good candidate because I, I, you, know, you seem like a really nice person. I would like to be closer to you. Would you like that too? A lot of people w respond very well to that because the vast majority of people in our society feel as though they do not have a, as many friends as they would like to have. So, um, so there's that. Uh, the other thing is you s commit yourself to saying, well, if I notice anyone, or maybe I have to sort of seek these out. And I actually know people who are really good at this. With the internet today, it's not only just for online dating, but it's also for online friending. There are uh, websites where it's both a dating website and a friend website where you actually like, oh, I like this person. I don't want to have sex with them, but I do want to be their friend. Maybe we could go to a movie. We could get a drink. We could do this, whatever. Another thing that people will say is, um, I'm too busy. I have three kids. I'm a single mom. Uh, I'm working all the time. I, I don't have time for friends. And what I say is, is I get that, but you don't have to spend a lot of time. There's not a huge time commitment to this sort of thing. Uh, you can talk to someone on the phone when you're driving home from work. You can email someone. You can text someone. Um, you can bop into someone's office when you're at work. You know, there's a lot of things like that. The other thing is, is you can friend other people with children and learn to navigate that relationship and actually like share resources. Imagine if you had a best friend who also had three kids, was also a single mom, and they were able to, you trusted them enough to actually take care of your kids and you could go to the store, you could go to a movie and, you know, to get some respite for each other. But you also can, uh, you know, the, the two of you take your six kids, collective kids to the park and they all play. Like imagine how great that would be. So, again, it's not easy, but if you go on a campaign, I think it's totally possible, and I think uh, it's absolutely attainable. Uh, so, you know, uh, I don't think there are barriers, and there, that's a challenge, 
but I, I've never heard a situation where I, I was convinced that it was impossible for the person to engage in a campaign to cultivate strong attachments that are supportive and mutually gratifying. So getting back to pets, there's been research by Solomon et al. 2018 in which they used a strange situation procedure with with pets. So, uh, so in other words, they're measuring the attachment style of the animal by using the strange situation with, with the animal. So the owner brings the pet into the room. The pet wants to stay close, but then eventually kind of ventures out around the room to play with toys. Then a stranger enters the room. How does the dog react? Then the owner leaves the room. How does the dog react? Then the um, the stranger leaves the room. Then they both, you know, you do that whole procedure and you code the the animal's response, and you can tell how attached the child, the, the child, the pet is to the owner. Now this is a bit different because these are animals; these are not humans, and. Uh, so they have different attachment behaviors, right? So there's that. Plus, different breeds of dogs and cats will have different innate attachment needs. You know, some some breeds of dogs will not really care about other humans. Like if you know enough about different dogs, you know that some dogs desperately need humans and will freak the fuck out when you leave them home at, from when you go to work and you leave them home. Whereas other dogs are just like, eh, I'm cool. You know, you can go to work. I don't really care. And they were bred as such because some dogs were bred for companionship and some dogs were bred for work and some dogs were bred for guarding things and some dogs were bred for retrieving ducks after you shot them. And, you know, there's just a lot of different uh, types of personalities that these dogs are born with. So that needs to be taken into consideration. The other consideration is that a lot of dogs are adopted well into the dog's life. Um, even at like two or three months, the dog has already gone through significant development by that time. And so uh, it's not the same as um, the strange situation for children. But it is sort of interesting to look at uh, how attached and what style of attachment a dog has to a adult, to their owner. And I think that it's not only intellectually interesting, but I think it's also useful for people to understand so that they can um, make decisions in their life based on the attachment style of their dog, of their cat. <laughs> because some, particularly dogs, can have a wide variety of difficulty, emotionally speaking, with separation and, and with strangers and that kind of thing. And so sometimes you can actually do things, interventions to – or even medication – to help the dogs cope, some like are in uh, uh, my house. Um, I, I used to live in a place where, across the alleyway, there was a dog that barked the whole time that their owner was at work, and so the dog would bark, you know, bark, 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 from eight a.m. until five p.m. Monday through Friday. And the uh, it was it was awful. I I could barely hear it, but there were people closer to that um, house where it was very loud to them. And there were repeated conversations with the owner to do something about it, and the owner never did. And so this went on for years. And so maybe that owner needed to have a talk with a attachment expert with regards to dogs and how to manage that. And or 
we need to be coached or educated prior to getting a dog. You know, maybe that breed is actually the sort of breed that needs to be with you all the time. And if you work and you don't plan on bringing your dog to work, then you shouldn't be uh, adopting that breed. So, um, I, I, and of course, you people out there who know more about this sort of thing, you know that this is a big deal. A lot of people will be like, ooh, that dog looks cool. I want to adopt it without really knowing the breed's personality uh, and tendencies. And so, um, you know, it's just something to think about. I was at someone's house last night and they had guinea pigs. And uh, I've never had a guinea pig. Um, I've only had cats and dogs. I had a rat once. Someone gave me a rat a long time ago that was pregnant when they gave it to me. They they didn't know it was pregnant. Um, That's a whole story. But anyway... I thought, oh, those guinea pigs, they look pretty cute. And I asked the, the owners, I, I was like, so do they cuddle with you or anything? And they're like, nope, the guinea pigs uh, hate us. <laughs> they tolerate us, but uh, they, they pretty much don't want to be held. And, um, so, and I was like, well, why do you have them? And they're like, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, just looking at something doesn't necessarily mean that um, the experience is going to be all that great. And so you should always do your research to a breed before getting it. Okay, so I have more things in my notes, but I think I will end it there because I think if I just go into other things, I'll go down some other rabbit holes. And also I probably will be just repeating myself on other points that I've made. Wow. So I just counted up all the hours of this deep dive, the several different chapters there uh, ended up being six chapters. This, this was the sixth chapter. I just counted up all the time, and it is about 17 hours. This deep dive, I remember when the, I did the narcissistic personality disorder deep dive, and that one really took the cake because that one was something like, I don't know, eight or ten hours something. And then I did the one on suicide, and that one was super long too. And so I thought, no, that'll never happen again. That's insane. Why in the world... <laughs> Would anyone talk for 10 hours about any one topic that, and you know, find more things to talk about? It's just absurd. Well, I've done it, 17 hours. That is, um, if you've been with me on this journey, I have to say, my God, I mean, how, how many hours have you heard anyone talk for so long to you about any one thing? <laughs> I hope you've never been subjected to something like this before. You know, as as I say this, I think back on another record that me and a friend, um, my friend Debbie in high school, we would talk on the phone, you know, back in the days when you didn't have a car, didn't have a license, and this is before the internet. So the only thing you could do to socialize with your friends is to talk on the phone. And so we had these records where we, and I wrote about in my diary, I'd be like, oh my God, we talked for three hours on the phone today. And then one time, I think we talked on the phone for nine hours or seven hours or something. And uh, I remember Kiss by Prince was popular at the time. And we would listen to the radio, the same radio station, of course, while we were talking on the phone. And, you know, we talked about things that uh, ninth graders talk about, I suppose. And this is sort of reminding me of that. So me with you, it's like talking with my best friend in high school on the phone for 17 hours. Um, however, the difference is, is um, I'm doing all the talking this time. <laughs> so please let me know what you think about this episode. Please reach out. Please um, tell me your experience. W- what did you absorb from this 17 hours, if anything? 
What do you think about your attachment style? Did you learn anything? Does this, did this help at all? I guess that's a big thing that I'm curious about is what did you take away and how did it help you? Because if it did, then I want to highlight that when I talk about this with people in the future, clients, students, myself, um, other people, that might be really helpful to learn. Like was it learning more about your attachment style? Was it learning more about how to use attachment-based self-help? Was it as a clinician? Uh, was it helpful to you? That that would be really interested in as well. Um, I, I find this to be super applicable. And um, like I said, I use this all the time. I use it every day. Today, I've already thought about attachment. I mean, it's obviously on the brain lately, but I, I, t- I think about it all the time. Um, so yeah, let me know. Email me at contact.psychologyinseattle.com or fill out the form on the website. When you fill out the form on the website, it's a little easier because it asks a bunch of specific questions like whether or not it's okay to read the email on the, on the podcast, whether or not you're a patron, how you would like us to refer to you, whether it's anonymous or otherwise. So if you're emailing me, I always like it when you go to the website and, and fill out the contact us form because then I always know that um, I, you know, I just get those answers from you <laughs> about specific things. Anyway, yeah, and thanks for being a patron. Uh, super cool of you. If you're new to the podcast and you listen to this whole thing, I recommend listening to all of our other deep dives. One of the easiest ways to find our best episodes is to go to the website. You use the universal password on the website, and then you can act on the patron apps pages. There's two pages there with all the patron-exclusive episodes, which are arguably the best episodes that we've made, or at least the most researched. Whenever I do a shit ton of research for an episode, I usually make it a Patreon-only episode because I'm just like, I feel like I need this one to be... Um, just for those people who deserve it. <laughs> I'm spending so much time on this. It just feels kind of funny to just put it up there for everybody. Having said that, I've done plenty of deep dives for everyone. Like I did a deep dive on asexuality and did a lot of research on that. And I felt like that needed to be available to everybody because I wanted to do some, you know, raising awareness and advocacy for asexuality. But anyway, um, So yeah, thanks for joining me and um, love you all. Seriously, it's really great to interact with you all. I probably, uh, you know, email with, I don't know, 10 or 20 of you a day. And it's always great to hear from you. So let me know what you think. And please take care of yourself and uh, foster those attachments because you deserve it. You really, really do.